And so we'll go ahead and we'll uh, we'll start the local recording, you know, because the local recording is important in case one of these people on the other side, you know, they're not the other side. They're our team. But, you know, in case those people who run the other platforms, I should say, in case they screw it up, then, you know, we've got the local recording. That's very important. So with the local recording begun, we'll go ahead and get this show on the road because it is Friday and we do this every Friday at 9.30 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time. So if you're listening or watching on some other platform at some other time, I invite you to join us for the live program. You can do that at ChristopherCantwell.net slash live. You can also do that on our Odyssey station channel, I think is the word. Goyam TV and elsewhere when it's working. But anyway, let's go see what Ann Coulter has to say about all this nonsense. That's it. It's over. Then we organize the death squads for the people who wrecked America. You know what you call people you can't talk to? Enemies. And if we want to divide our society into armed camps of enmity, all we have to do is keep doing what we're doing. A radical agenda. The event has turned into an opportunity for the left to push a racial and radical agenda. Implementing their radical agenda is the only thing they care about. They're bad actors. What they want to do here is ram their radical agenda down your throat. These are great Americans. These are people that want to see great things for the country. You know, they try and build them like uh, sort of a radical agenda. It's not a radical agenda. It's called the Second All Amendment. All right, on with it. Welcome to the Radical Agenda. It's a show about timeless ideas and news of the day. And whatever's on your mind at 217-688-1433. Yes, this agenda is quite radical. And welcome to it. This 53rd episode of the Sixth Stage of the Pogrom. Today is February 2nd, 2024. It's the current year. It's a Friday as usual. And we are coming to you live once again from my undisclosed location where... Uh, you know, so much going on today. Presented a bit of a challenge, creating a, a monologue for the show today. Though it surely makes for easy work of uh, creating a jam-packed episode. We're going to have some fun tonight. And uh, I thank those of you who are watching live for joining us, because I'd love to hear from you, 217-688-1433, as I said before. On a Wednesday Surreal Politics uh, member show, I discussed at some length the case of Justin Moan, you might have heard, who decapitated his father as punishment for being employed by the Army Corps of Engineers. I cleaned up the uh, the audio from that monologue and added some music to it, and I think uh, I, I will play it for you momentarily, and I think you're going to like it if you haven't heard it yet. And even if you listen to the member show, I think you're going to like the way what I did with it. And a new detail emerged in that story, several actually, but of particular note to me is the fact that Moan apparently surrendered a medical marijuana card in order to obtain the firearm he purchased the day before he used it to put a bullet in the brain of his father. You know, I've, uh, I've long said that contrary to popular belief, marijuana is one of the most harmful drugs on the market. I actually think that we do a major disservice. People who advocate against marijuana by calling it a gateway drug, I believe, actually do their own cause a great injustice because the problem with marijuana is not that it leads to the use of other drugs, though, you know, to the extent that that's the case, it's obviously not good. But marijuana itself is very, very bad. Uh, you know, a heroin addict, you know, he might suffer more debilitating withdrawal symptoms when deprived of his chemical crutch, but at least he has enough self-awareness to know that he is a drug addict, right? A fentanyl junkie risks overdose with each hit, but he at least knows that he needs to find some portion of his day where the drug is only used to keep him level, even if only to steal efficiently. Alcoholics destroy their bodies and their relationships. They take unwarranted risks and destroy vehicles and families just to get to and from a bar. 
But on his worst day, the worst of drunks finds a few hours of sobriety. Marijuana users are the only drug addicts who wake up in the morning and before taking a piss or having a coffee, begin their intoxication routine. They'll go right into the ashtray and grab that joint or their bowl or whatever. Absent compelling forces, many will remain in this state until they fall asleep at night. Throughout the course of the day, they will be under the influence of the drug and all of their decisions are made while high. They hold the very unique distinction of being able to do this while denying that they are drug addicts with the support of prominent people who really ought to know better. Analyzing Bone's video, it is clear that he has some mental health issues. He is not, however, a full-blown schizophrenic incapable of forming full sentences, and his analysis of our political problems is largely sound. So it is questionable, to say the least, whether he really believed he was the leader of a nationwide militia movement and in possession of $10 million to issue bounties on government agents. One suspects he had more awareness of what he was doing than he lets on. He might have thought that he was preparing an insanity defense for the murder of his father, which he might have done sans the politics. But among the worst things that you could do is give drugs to the mentally ill. That Justin Moan would have had a medical marijuana card to surrender is troubling in the extreme. I do not know what symptoms he claimed to receive it, but given that he already had written a book suggesting that he was the Messiah, it's fairly plain to see that Justin Moan was very troubled well prior to murdering his father and calling for revolution under the banner of the dead man's head. Still more troubling is the notion that one simply turns in their card and by this act is deemed no longer a drug addict. The question about substance abuse on the firearms background check form is not very well worded. It asks, are you, as in, at the instant of filling out the form, addicted to or an illegal user of controlled substances, okay? So if you were a drug addict yesterday and you're not a drug addict today, then the answer is no, of course I'm not addicted to controlled substances. It's just a question of, in this moment, are you addicted to controlled substances? Well, I don't know. Are you, you know, if you go in there and you're high on heroin, then obviously, you know, at that time, you're a user of controlled substances. But you might not be feeling very addicted because you're high out of your fucking mind and you don't really have to worry about your withdrawal symptoms much. But then again, you know, well, I was a user of heroin like 15 minutes before I walked into the store. Am I a user of one now? As a matter of fact, I'm going to go to the door. I'm going to promise to quit heroin. I'm going to go buy myself a firearm. And uh, when I do that, I'll say, no, like I quit, I quit heroin like 15 minutes ago. I know I'm high, but you know, you're not asking me if I'm under the influence. You're asking me if I am at this moment a user. No, I quit, I quit a long time ago. And for me, 15 minutes is a long time. You know, I don't usually wait that long. I got no attention span. <laughs> it's not very well worded. But if Justin Moan had to pass a drug test to receive his Sig Sauer 9mm pistol, Mike Moan might still be alive today because marijuana is almost certainly still in the fat cells of his son. I'm not suggesting that we should implement that screening method, only pointing out that one who is so dependent upon a drug that he would forfeit his Second Amendment rights to have the government feed his addiction is rid of that addiction by opting to purchase his crutches unlawfully. One day you're a drug addict, you fill out a form, and that same afternoon you cease to be. That's bureaucracy at its worst, as a matter of fact. And a medical marijuana thing, you know, I've said a long time that medical marijuana is just a speed bump on the path to recreational legalization, wherein every pothead in town has issued a card for symptoms ranging from depression to insomnia to headaches, 
And eventually, recreational legalization is not so much a change in policy as a codification of the de facto state of affairs. That was always the aim of the people who lobbied for it. And those who did never made any secret of the agenda. They set it out front. Like, the whole entire point is to completely deregulate this thing. And this is just on the path. This is just one of the steps that we're taking. Marijuana is just a plant. Then it's just medicine. Then you are denying sick people medicine by controlling it. And then you're like, well, it's medicine. It's a plant. What are you doing? Why is the government giving this money to these, you know, pharmaceutical corporations? You know, give it back to the people or whatever. And they do it worse than that, of course, too, because then they insert their whole, you know, racial animus into it. And they're like, well, you know, we've got to give, we've got to, we've got to reparate, we've got to pay reparations to the black community for the war on drugs, of course. And so, you know, if you're, if you're a drug dealer and you're a person of color, is the, that's the phrase they like to use most of the time. BIPOC, black indigenous people of color. So if you're a BIPOC drug dealer, uh, and you went to prison in a lot of places. You actually get like first in line to become like the legal marijuana dealer. Pretty good racket. And so, you know, that's the this is the steps that they take in any case. The process is predictable and destructive. So the government was giving a powerful psychoactive drug to a man who was clearly mentally disturbed. It stopped giving him that drug while making little effort to stop him from obtaining it elsewhere. And then it gave him a gun instead. What could possibly go wrong with that? <laughs> and so you know and i'm not saying that marijuana made you know justin moan murder his father cut his head off and make a youtube video about how it's not about race and the government's trying to divide us as if that you know that was probably the craziest thing in there all this racial unity crap was probably the fucking craziest part you know it's like decapitated head racial egalitarianism yeah just go keep on you know you know it used to be you might you used to be able to get a government job beheading people you know that was you know that was something you could t- you could take pride in your profession in at some point in that. It's a pretty recent phenomenon that somebody can go and like say with a straight face that we're all the same. <laughs> that would not have flown throughout most of human history. 217-688-1433. You like to be on the program and the more you talk, the less I have to. So please give us a call. I'm going to play, uh, I'll play this clip from, uh, from the uh, from the Wednesday show real quick before we go on to the other subjects. And there's plenty of other subjects to get to. If you saw the email I sent out today, you know what I'm talking about. And you, by the way, if you're not getting that email, what's wrong with you? It might be because you have like Yahoo for your email provider and they're a bunch of criminals, you know, or maybe you have Charter or Roadrunner or one of these things. You got to tell those people like, hey, you know, I signed up for emails and you're not delivering them. And I don't want you to do that because you don't decide who I talk to. I don't want to deal with that shit. Oh, you can get a real email account. I have a really, like, a good email account. It's called ProtonMail. You can get it. It's realpolitics.com slash getpm. That'd be a great idea. If you're still using Yahoo for your email address, or for that matter, Microsoft or Gmail, like, what are you doing? Like, why do you let these people control your communications? It's dumber than letting Apple decide what Telegram channels you can follow. It's really not smart. I'm not calling you dumb or anything like that. I'm just saying that you made a bad decision. Hate to sin or love the sin. That's what they say. That's what the Christians tell us, you know? And so you go uh, surrealpolitics.com slash get PM, and then you can sign up for a, 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 uh, 
a ProtonMail account. And then, like, when I email you, you can read it. It's a great feature. I like that, you know, uh, ProtonMail has a lot of features, right? Like, they have, like, it's encrypted, most notably. They have, like, self-destructing messages. Really great ser service. But probably the best thing about ProtonMail is that when you, when you want to be emailed by someone and then they do what you ask them to do, ProtonMail, and it, you can't do this in a lot of providers, ProtonMail will actually let you read the email. Like, it'll get delivered. It'll be in your inbox. They won't mark it as spam, you know, usually. And then you just go and you click on it. It's like right there, you know. I think that was like kind of the whole idea behind creating email in the first place. But then, you know, you know, basically a bunch of Jews ruined it, I think. You know, they do that a lot, those Jews. They fuck up everything. Never short on things that stretch. So let's go ahead and play this clip uh, from Wednesday about the Justin Moan situation. I'll be right back. On things that stretch the imagination, of course. A recently released video uh, emerged in which an apparently mentally disturbed man rattles off some eminently reasonable concerns about America's ongoing political problems while discrediting those views by holding up the decapitated head of his father and claiming that he was the leader of a militia network with millions of dollars at its disposal. Justin Moan, 32 years of age, is being held without bond, charged with murder, abuse of a corpse, and other charges, Pennsylvania court documents show. Perhaps most pertinently to Surreal Politics members, Moan's story is a predictable one in some sense, in a scenario the likes of which I've had some apprehension I might find myself at the center of. Our circumstances are indeed dire, as you know too well. To explain the full gravity of our political problems sounds to most comfortable people like the rantings of a madman, because our reality has taken on this surreal character due to the sick machinations of those we hold in enmity. To explain these things to people who are uncomfortable, for whatever reason, has the potential to explain, at least psychologically, their discomfort. Whether or not the problems described are actually at the core of their discomfort, they can assign blame in this way. Circumstances within that individual, whether they be mental illness or drug addiction or character flaws or bad relationships, cease to be a problem with that individual so far as that individual is concerned. The disturbed person is given license to blame an omnipresent them for whatever it may be, be it the deep state or the Jews or the New World Order or simply the government or society or the ever-present and ever-conspiring boogeyman of capitalism, the patriarchy or white supremacy. The result is a plausible excuse not to look within oneself and address one's internal problems. This constitutes much of our politics, even if most of the participants are not so unhinged as to decapitate a relative and declare war on the powers that be. Deeply disturbed individuals devote their entire lives to fixing society in an effort to make it conform to their warped vision of proper order. This may emerge as trans activists demanding the state force honest people to lie with designer pronouns or efforts to have a military invade and destroy a foreign land to eradicate real or imagined evils emanating therefrom, or mere demand of subsidy for valueless or destructive behavior some person or group mistakenly believes is too important to go unrewarded. The possibilities are quite literally endless, especially when the pursuit of power becomes the only purpose of political speech. Clever strategists spend unthinkable amounts of money hiring psychologists and the like, concerned only with convincing the populace to elect their party or candidate. Political statements are crafted without concern for their veracity or the merits of the programs described. The only purpose is a goal-oriented manipulation of perceptions, inflaming passions, promising the undeliverable. For these folks, it is all in a day's work. 
There are no shortage of warning signs that our society is spiraling out of control, but the story of Justin Moan is among the starkest. When the man with the decapitated head correctly assesses our problems and his mental illness only becomes evident when he starts in with the violence and delusions of grandeur, the murderous fantasies of the psychologically broken and the realities of our world have evidently converged. It became evident to me toward the end of 2018 that I needed to exercise more caution in how I address these problems. When one discovers the full gravity of our social and political crises, there emerges a sense that one must raise the alarm to tell as many people as possible about the direness of the situation. But when a man takes that information, is caused to walk into a house of worship and begin gunning down those not directly responsible for these crises, it is not entirely unreasonable for society to blame the messenger. To draw a parallel example, reasonable people understand that pop culture has been a dangerous influence on our society. Pornography, too, warps the minds of those who view it. The consequences are rarely so directly evident as the example of the political extremist gunning down his perceived enemies, but they are all the more pervasive precisely because of that less evidently causal link. There are those who can view disturbing material, categorize it as fantasy, and live normal lives. There are those who cannot. Then there are the far greater number for whom the line is not so clear. It influences their thinking in more subtle ways and shifts in less notable increments their perceptions. To tell an educated, well-adjusted, successful person about the true scope of our political crises may trouble him deeply, but he understands that he cannot begin to solve those problems from prison or the grave. He is thus all the more motivated to maintain his productive participation in society and make an impact toward a brighter future. To tell a mentally disturbed individual who can see only suffering before him the exact same details leads him to believe that prison or an early grave are his most likely destinations, regardless of how he participates in society. Met with this vision of his future, he may seek to maximize his impact on the journey thereto by taking others down with him. I came to realize at some point that when I speak in public, I speak to both classes of person. Without some control over who listens, I cannot help but be responsible for the ideas I put in the minds of the unhinged to some extent. That knowledge presents no small challenge to a man in my position. To communicate honestly risks tragedy and no less to decline. Armed with some knowledge and a talent to convey the message inspiringly, it is arguably to participate in a cover-up to keep silent or downplay the severity of the crises. Yet to put in the minds of those incapable of handling them the ideas that lead to tragedy is neither without consequence or culpability for the speaker. Words are our most powerful weapons. A gun can kill a man with some assistance. Nuclear bombs can destroy continents and in sufficient quantity, planets. But only ideas can cause men to use them for those purposes and without men so motivated, these objects are entirely inert. The words are what convey the ideas. Absent them, we'd be as harmless as any other mammals capable of only doing so much damage as our naked bodies could cause, and at that, only in pursuit of food and sex. All right, welcome back to the Radical Agenda. Thanks for uh, sticking with me through that there. I'll be interested in your feedback on that one. You know, I posted that to Telegram, and it got like two lightning bolts, and I was like, oh, well, that was... Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not compliment fishing here. I, I'm genuinely interested. You know, I've, I've only bothered to put, um, a musical background to like a couple of these monologues that I've done. Uh, it takes a little while to do, not least of all, just to like find the, 
the music, I have these like licensing services that, uh, you know, I, I've told you before, I used to get all these intellectual property complaints for playing music on a show. Oh, just a little system notification making noise on my podcast. Who cares? Fine. Um, <laughs> let's do this. System sounds off. We'll do that. That's a good idea. I should probably do that before every episode. Um, and so uh, let me, you know, ChristopherCantwell.net slash contact is how you can um, contact me privately. Of course, you're welcome to leave comments on the Odyssey channel, etc. 217-688-1433. You like to be on the program. And the more you told, the less I have to. So please do give us a call. Let's go to this uh, this uh, fine fellow right here before we go on to the rest of this uh, stuff we got. Caller, you are on the Radical Agenda. What's your agenda? Oh, good evening, Chris. I'm, uh, you know, I'm really glad that I find uh, that I've gotten through. I've been a fan of your show for some time. I really like your monologue, and it's a shame that people on Telegram were too pig-headed to give it the more uh, more attention that it deserves. Oh, uh, they're great people. Um, you know, I, I I wouldn't say that they are. Uh, you know, I, a lot of them heard it already. So you know, it's uh, I I, I it's oh, not yeah. a mark against them, uh, but I appreciate your sentiment in any case, friend. Oh, I, you're very welcome, Chris. I, you know, I I really I like Telegram myself. But, you know, so the reason I called, and, you know, I like what you say, the more you talk, the less I have to. And we're going to see if that's true, because I've got a bit of things to say, but I'm not going to ha- I'm not going to steal the limelight from you or anything. Wow. Um, but what I have to say is, so- sorry? No, go ahead, buddy. Okay, well, so what I was going to say is, so I watched your show last night for the first time in a while, because, you know, I just recently gravitated to Odyssey. And, um, Welcome aboard. Last week's show, you put- oh, thank you. You, so you played that clip from your rant from 2017 when you were going on about, like, you know, the, the fierce, like, proud Roman white Aryan ethos and masters of war and all that. And that's it's good. It's true. But see, here's the thing, though, is that if we're going to have a serious discussion about what the white Aryan ethos is, we also have to discuss and know clearly in our minds what it is not. And what the white Aryan ethos is not, and this is not going to make me a popular person for saying this, but it is not Christianity. Well, you know, I think that so, there's uh, a, 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 when you say it's not going to make you a popular person, it'll put you in some good company for sure. But there's going to be no shortage of disagreement about that. You know, I uh, I'll let you c- continue with your point. I'll just insert quickly that, you know, I don't think that the uh, as you you're describing the white Aryan ethos. I don't think that that's a that's a phrase that I've used frequently for sure. But I, I, I think that the way you're using that term, it's probably true what you're saying that it is not the same thing, that these are two different categories of idea. Uh, and so I think that, you know, so far what you've said is fair, but of course, you know, Christianity has been with white folks a long time. I mean, you know, most of our meaningful history, I would say, has been conducted as as Christian nations. But go ahead. Well, see, here's the thing. So Christianity is controlled opposition. And I know you've talked about that a lot in your um, in your shows. See, Christianity did not exist um, as far back as 200 BCE. The world was united under a pagan king, or at least most of the populated, civilized world at the time, was united under a king named Antiochus Epiphanes, which is where the word epiphany comes from. And it means, like, uh, bringer of the divine, touched by Mithra. So the Jews, being Jews, were going around the region known as the Holy Land, or what have you, doing communism and other blood sacrifice and other deplorable things. And uh, Epiphanes was like, no, we can't allow these guys to be doing this. And so he united the pagan world against them, where they were driven from every nation. And then they set upon Rome, 
And when they saw Rome, it is said that even in some of their rabbinical texts that they wept at the majesty of Rome and felt nothing more than a compulsion to destroy everything Rome is and stood for. And so what they did then was they went into a self-imposed exile where they meticulously cataloged and observed where the pagan peoples and pagan kingdoms drew their strength. And they drew their strength from you know their pagan unity and the gods and so on and so forth. So what they then did is they invented this fabricated religion that was their new religion. They stole all of the different uh, pagan myths, stole from them, and instead of including the gods, they replaced them with fictitious Jewish characters. The character of Jesus is based on the uh, disciple of Apollo, Apollyonus, almost verbatim, only without the blood sacrifice and all the, like, you know, rape and all the other terrible things. And so what they then did is they set upon Rome as simple merchants, you know, pretending, oh, no, you know, all of that blood sacrifice, all of that nasty stuff, oh, we're not like that now. Just give us your poor, your sick, and your hungry. You know, we're just here as humble merchants. We just want to help the less fortunate. And the Romans, you know, the Romans underestimated them. You know, they didn't realize how subversive these people were. And it's not, and so, you know, the early Christianity targeted, you know, the sick, the, the, the unintelligent, the, the, the lazy, people that Rome did not want, but had no, but, you know, wasn't, it wasn't just going to kick out because they weren't inadvertent, they weren't directly a threat to Rome. Well, then, as they began to gain influence and power, they set upon with a Fabian strategy, Fabian strategy being based off of a Roman general's own strategy, which is basically, uh, to simplify it, it's death by a thousand cuts, rather than by a simple, you know, like, staggering blow. So Christianity began to slowly muster followers and followers and gain political influence through their, you know, charitable works and so on and so forth. The Latin cross, which has become a staple of Christianity, was actually a symbol of the goddess Nemesis, as can be seen in a Greek symbol, which is the Latin cross with an upward uh, hourglass, and it stands for divine justice. It wasn't until the 7th century that the Latin cross began permeating through churches, and then until the 9th century in Rome, uh, when it was fully adopted, or wherever that may have been. And my point being is not to bash, you know, white people that are fighting against the Jew, because ultimately we as whites do have to unite against the Jew. My message is a message of unity, and that is that if you fight the Jew materially with one hand, but then you go to a church and you bless him with the other, because every page of the Bible talks about how Jesus is a Jew, Jews, Jews, Israel, bow down to Jews, let Jews save you. If your enemy is the Jew, praying to a Jew for salvation against Jews is not going to bring you that salvation. My point being is that white people, and I myself am a proud white man, and we have to be united mentally, spiritually, and emotionally in order to defeat this monster that is Judea and put it down for the ten count. Because everywhere that Jews have ever been ousted, Christianity moves right in afterward. Christianity is the quote-unquote spiritual program that this, you know, controlled opposition that is the Republican Party that you often see in America is. It's just, there are two, the Republican Party being the material angle of it, whereas Christianity being the spiritual angle. Jews have never been able to defeat paganism, and so they created a kosher enemy that they could defeat. And now an example of this, why we must be, we can't just oppose them materially. We also have to oppose them with everything that we have. An example of this is the Vietnam War. So the Vietnam War was hardly a crusade. 
But the Jews, as any studied person knows, are always the ones behind communism and the ones promoting communism. Lev Levitovich Bronstein, the Bolshevik Revolution, all of that kind of stuff. All Jews, different clothing. Communism is Jewish from head to toe and always has been. Now, the Vietnam War, you had the American forces going over there. Every time the American forces clashed in battle in Vietnam against the forces of communism, they always prevailed on the field of, ba- on the field of battle. Yet, regrettably, they lost the war, and Vietnam, and Vietnam ended up becoming a communist state. Because, yes, there was, because the Jew was left unopposed, running rampant back home, where these, you know, the American forces thought they were fighting for this god, and it's like, the Jewish god that is called Jehovah is not your god. It's a Jewish god, whose name in and of itself, in and of itself was stolen from the Greek god Jove. There is nothing original in any of the things that they do. They steal, lie, and cheat, and then they destroy the evidence of their theft or attempt to, and then pretend like what they have said has been the truth all along. And this is always, the, the Jew has never changed. All throughout history, he has never changed. Um, all right, so that's an interesting take. Let me ask you a couple of questions here. Um, okay. If that's the case, then, you know, the Islam sort of is, you know, it comes after Christianity, right? So, you know, you have the, the Old Testament or the Jews call it the Torah. Christianity comes around and then Jesus is in the Quran and basically uh, suggesting the chronology of events in any case. And so I don't get the impression that Islam is a, is a tool of Jewish subversion. Do you? I do. In fact, Jew, in Islam is absolutely a tool of Jewish subversion. Islam is much more barbaric. If Christianity is the light side of, Jude- of, of the Jewish soul, then Islam is the dark side of the Jewish soul. And they promote these things to distance Gentiles, uh, because Arab people, if they're not racially mixed, are also whites. And the Jews, the two biggest places where they faced opposition was white Europe and Egypt. And Egypt had a ton of white Arabs. So Islam has been a tool of the Jews to try to strip racial memory and subvert Arab whites into this barbaric and neolithic pattern of behavior. And basically what they have, what, 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 and the, the reason behind this is because the Jew is not strong enough to meet his enemy in direct and open combat and survive. And so the Jew always thrives on trying to trick other people who are stronger but less knowledgeable, to fight against themselves and to kill themselves. It's like, you know, if, if there is two Gentiles, regardless of whether they be white, black, or Asian, that kill each other, at the end of the day, that's a good day for a Jew. Because if the Gentiles are killing each other, then they're not killing Jews. And, like, let me, and let me say, I'm, I'm, not, I'm just talking from the historical standpoint. I am not advocating violence against any people. Well, thank you for inserting that necessary disclaimer. Um, I think that there's um, there's ample cause to, you know, I, I'm probably not in a position to do it, but I, I think there's cause to dispute your finding that Muslims are by nature white. I, I think of white folks as being uh, hailing from Europe, and it, it doesn't seem to me that Islam was ever the dominant religion there. Uh, it's becoming that way now, and it's uh, uh, that is obviously uh, that's that's something that the Jews are you know really getting a kick out of. Um, I think it was interesting that, I imagine you might have seen this, that 
uh, Gavin McGinnis went on with um, with uh, Nick Fuentes and his Jewish friend uh, to debate. I don't I forget if it was the Holocaust or what it was. But then you know Fuentes or his partner asked uh, the Jewish friend of Mr. McGinnis. So you know if you had if you could destroy you know say Islam or the Catholic Church, which one it would be? And it didn't take that Jew half a second to turn around and be like, I would get rid of the Catholic Church in a heartbeat because I'm a Jew and that's what we do. Now, no, it's not exact, his exact words, but it didn't take him long to say the Catholic Church. And so... Well, know, and... and it, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, my, my point is that if, gonna, if, if, if Christianity is some kind of Jewish plot, why are they trying to wreck it all the time? Because it's controlled opposition. It served its purpose. Christianity, Jews want Christianity gone because it already achieved its goal of stripping the racial memory and stripping the knowledge of the spirit from white people and replacing it with this Jewish amalgamation, this aggregor that has nothing to do with our soul and its roots. And so now what they don't want to have happen is exactly kind of what's been going on, which is where Christianity turns into this fucking, this monster where it's like neither Gentile nor Jewish. And it's just this like beast that's spasming about in the room. And like, and so that's why, and then also, also, the other reason for that is because one of the things that Jews do is Jews debate each other, and they pretend to fight amongst themselves all the time so that they can reveal each other's weaknesses so that they can try not to try to get rid of those things. So, like, a lot of people see this dispute between Judaism and Christianity, and they're like, oh, they're enemies. No, they're not enemies. They are pretending to be enemies publicly. But, in fact, they both work towards the goal of enslaving everybody who's not Jewish. There's a quote from Pope uh, Leo... XVIV or something like that. It's one of the popes, and his quote is that it has served us well, this myth of Christ. And there's also a quote I'm sorry, from I, the Catholic I, I, I'm sorry, it has served us well what? I didn't catch that. Uh, he said, the Pope Leo said, it has served us well, this myth of Christ. Meaning that from the highest order in the Catholic Church, they know that it's not true, that it's a lie, and that they've been deliberately promoting it to disarm specifically white Gentile peoples. Well, I'll say, um, I don't think that it's the most controversial statement that a religious leader lacks faith in the historicity of the religious text. That doesn't, I don't know that that's the most important part of a religious doctrine to many religious people. I've, I've had conversations with people who take Christianity pretty seriously, and, and they'll tell me that, um, that they 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 do not believe that the you know the Bible is a historical record. Say that this is a a story that serves a purpose, right? And so you know there's a distinction to be made there between not believing that these events actually transpired and not believing the doctrine of the faith. I, I think that there's a distinction to be made. And the 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 quote that you give me says that okay he he does not believe in the historicity of the text. But that does not mean that it, you are inferring from other factors that, oh, yeah, well, this is a tool of the Jew to subvert my people, right? That's not, that's not what the Pope said. Well, well, yeah, yeah, well that, that, yes, I mean, you're right insofar as that. And, uh, you know, if you would like, because I definitely do think that you're very much a historical and uh, a type of man that likes to do his research. So um, I, can, I can tell you the website and its affiliates where I have received this knowledge. And all of these websites have, cataloged and documented and extremely valuable uh, cited sources. Go ahead. You can, you can, you can name so, the site. Go ahead. 
Okay, so the website is called www.exposingchristianity.com. And okay. it has several affiliate websites that are also super-based, but you can get to those from the main website. So www.exposingchristianity.com. I, I think, you know, my my take on this is that Christianity does not emerge as something the Jews wanted. It seems to be that Christianity was a revolt against the Jews. It, it doesn't seem to be to be what you're describing it as. And I hear this theory from time to time. And it doesn't it doesn't jive with my understanding of it, right? I mean, it it, it is basically it it refutes the entire text, right? So you know, Nietzsche commented that yeah. the idea that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same, you know, consciousness is preposterous, right? Because you know, the God of the Old Testament is like, yeah, we'll go, we're going to go and kill every suckling in the city or whatever, and the God of the New Testament is like, turn the other cheek and forgive everybody, okay? So it's like, well, see, that's what, you know, that guy had a fucking change of pace. I don't know if he went to fucking rehab or what happened, but like, you know. Well, let's see. The, go ahead. Well, that, that's the thing, though, is that it's supposed to look that way because it mirrors what the Jews themselves did. They were being openly Neolithic and barbaric, and it resulted in them having their asses handed to them by every pagan kingdom, you know, in the ancient world. So then they had this quote-unquote change of heart. It's not a real change of heart. It is the illusion of a change of heart. They never changed what they were doing privately. They changed what they were doing publicly. And it is because of this that they were able to freaking, you know, get their roots into Rome and begin to subvert Rome. And by the time, and it's not like they tried to recruit Aristotle or Plato or the other, you know, like mighty of Rome and the Greco-Roman world. You know, they targeted people that were destitute, that were either too, you know, ill to really you know, care, or people that were too lazy or, you know, the criminally-minded people that really just genuinely did not care. And then, you know, it's by the time, like, you know, people realized this monster and this virus for what it is, you know, then it was too late. And then Rome eventually fell, and then, but then the virus had been communicated over to England, where then the King James Bible originated and all of this stuff, and it's like, you know, all of that is just made... To make to make ex, to make Christianity sound as if it is more white when in fact it is not. But I mean, uh, you know, Christianity has been with white people, as I said, through through most of our, you know, most of the history of white people that that people who would hear this recording would find significant yeah. has been conducted as Christian nations, right? And so, like, you know, do we have well, a, yeah. do we have a pre-Christian history? We certainly do. I'm not, and and without that history, we don't have our Christian history. So I'm not denying the foundational importance of paganism or what have you. But it seems to me that, you know, the accomplishments of, you know, European, peoples of European ancestry are, are the greatest accomplishments that we can think of today are conducted as Christian nations. Do you dispute that? Well, I, I do not dispute that the nations themselves that did that considered themselves to be such. But what I do dispute is that the people that are mostly responsible for that are probably not as Christian as you might think. For example, the founding fathers of the United States were not Christians, despite what the despite what the history books may tell you. They were not Christians. Why would someone who and the history books will tell you, oh, you know, they you know, the, the colonists went over to the Americas on the Mayflower to escape religious persecution. Well, if that's the case, why would you flee across the sea to establish your own new nation, to escape religious persecution, only to reestablish a variant of the same religion that you were fleeing? 
it makes no sense. Well, I, I actually, so, well, just real quick, you know, on that particular point, you can make sense of that pretty easily, as a matter of fact. Okay, so you know, in England. Um, there was a lot of controversy between Christians, of course. Okay, the Catholic Church and the and the and you know the Lutherans were you know there was more than a little hostility between these groups, say. And so you know that's literally the that's the historical record that that's the religious persecution that they were freeing, fleeing. And when you when you hear that's, about hang on a second, and so you know it, the original gonna, intent the the original concept of religious freedom in the United States was, we're not going to tell you how to worship Christ. You know, it wasn't, you can create a spaghetti God and have equal footing with Jesus. It was, yeah, we're all Christians and we don't need to be destroying each other uh, over our different conceptions of, you know, what the Bible tells us to do. And even if they're not, even if they were not, you know, you, you say that the founding fathers were not Christians. I think that there's people who would you know, raise evidence to dispute that. I understand from some familiarity with the argument that there's evidence in support of what you're saying. I'm not disputing that. But, you know, these people came, they, their entire lives were informed by a Christian tradition. They were born into a Christian nation. They were raised as Christian people. They read the Bible. They went to Christian churches. And so their whole entire perspective is informed by Christianity, whether they you know, believed it or not, or to, or how Christian they were is a, you know, is a difficult thing to measure, say. But, you know, they were informed by a Christian tradition, and, and the laws of the United States are largely based on that tradition as well, don't you think? Um, I would say that the Christianity, the influence of Christianity on the laws of the United States and its founders are greatly exaggerated. As I would also say that the history that we have is also greatly, greatly horrifically altered beyond the level that most people would be even like b that most people would be ready to comprehend i mean the rewrite and the cover-up and the alteration of documents and historical accounts is absolutely exhaustive it's the kind of thing that really even for people that consider themselves you know to be like oh well you know most normies would consider me a conspiracy theorist it's even reaching for people that already consider themselves awake to the truth it's even it, it's that i mean it's that grand you know, we're talking about we're talking about you know a war between two contrary types of souls. You know, the souls of Jews and the souls of non-Jews that dates back to antiquity. You know, almost to before the time of written history, and um, if not longer, I'm not entirely sure. But that website I recommended you and its affiliate websites has all the information much more succinctly than my than my humble voice can do. Well, you know, and, and people who are interested in the subject, I wouldn't discourage them from checking it out. You know, I, I have to, uh, uh, you know, point out the obvious, which is that these people obviously have an agenda to pursue. And so, you know, I doubt that they're portraying a great deal of um, the contrary evidence from the from the name of the website that you gave. But, you know, I, I think that let me ask you this. What, what do you think ought to happen then? I mean, it, it doesn't seem to be. We have a society today drifting away from religion as a general matter and Christianity in particular. It's, on, it's co under constant assault. And in my estimation, the nation is not improved by this circumstance. It, it, it seems to be quite the contrary, that in direct correlation with the diminishment of religious influence in public life today, that the nation actually gets a lot worse. Now, I don't I'm not sure that it's a realistic prospect to have some kind of like religious awakening and everybody starts going to church on Sunday and that's going to straighten it out. But it, it, I don't actually see 
um, a much brighter alternative than that, frankly, because if people don't have that thing, if they, if they, if they don't have that religious, if, if that religious component of the mind is not occupied, say, it, it, a vacuum forms and other nonsense ideas fill it. And that's, I think, largely how you get transgenderism and left-wing nonsense, right? It, it seems to me well, that I, whether, whether true or false or whether destructive or not, it seems to me my observation of human psychology is that you know, there's a religious component of the human psyche, and that actually requires fulfillment. And and so it has to be filled with something, I think, and I am obs- I'm able to observe that there's far more destructive doctrines than Christianity. What do you have to say to that limited point? Well, what I have to say to that, Mr. Campbell, is that I agree with you, in fact. And what I'm saying, what I'm saying is that that foundation, that spiritual backbone within the souls of men— that does require fulfillment is not Christianity. And it is, in fact, paganism, our original pre-Christian faith. That is what I'm saying that it is. Because, And if you look at the track record, how many times, you know, it's like freaking, we didn't have the problems with the Jews that we did, that we do now, back when everybody was pagan. It's like, yes, they, they were a thorn in people's sides, back in the pagan world, not this horrific, you know, abomination that has seized financial, monetary, and institutional power in almost every country. And so something had to have given. What happened that caused it to where people, where where Jews were just a minor inconvenience that people spat on and just, you know, shunned, to where now they are this thing, this titan that has to be toppled at all costs. And I'm telling you, whether you agree with me or not, that that turning point was the advent of Christianity. Well, I, I think that there's there's cause to dispute that timeline. You know, Christian nations uh, were for, you know, a pretty long time rather notoriously anti-Semitic in large part, right? Like, that's a pretty recent phenomenon that, like, you know, the I forget what year it was, but I, I'm pretty sure it was in the 1900s <laughs> that the Catholic Church was like, yeah, we got to stop, you know, treating Jews badly or something. So you have this, you know, hundreds of years of Christian history before the Catholic Church turns around. It's like, yeah, stop persecuting Jews. Well, and I would say that the reason for that is, is because that people that were involved in Christianity began to see through the cracks. You know, people began to read the Bible for what it is and not what it is intended to be received as and started realizing that Jews are the problem. And I mean, you know, it takes... You know, freaking people, you know, some people adjust to things more quickly than others. But I mean, <clears throat> but yeah, you know, I mean, but, you know, a person's adjustment to a thing is a different category of phenomenon that I'm discussing. Right. I mean, if you've ever read Martin Luther um, on the Jews and their lies, I mean, this is the foundation of the, you know, the Protestant tradition. Right. He splits off from the Catholic Church and, you know, and and, you know, creates the the religious you know, schism that creates the religious persecution that the United States is formed on, okay? He wrote a book called titled On the Jews and Their Lies, basically telling them to eat pig shit. I forget the exact quote, but it was pretty fucking brutal. And like, you know, and and so this that's where, you know, Protestantism begins is with a with an anti Semite. <laughs> and it and he didn't do that because the Catholic Church was all like Jews, 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 right? So I mean that's the early history of the of the religious tradition that you're talking well, about, and so you know I, I think that I, just give me a second. You know, 
I, I'm not. It's it's actually not lost on me. Destructive elements of Christian doctrine, like I think, turn the other cheeks is just like I mean, it's just suicide, right? You know, forgiving your enemies is like, oh, you know who wants you to do that? People in need of fucking forgiveness, right? You know, people who have wronged you require forgiveness, and so you know, there's problems to be had there for sure, you know, but. You know, when I hear these arguments, and I hear them from time to time, it's not unusual for me to be exposed to what you're saying. You're probably better at articulating it than most of the people who do it, and so good for you. But, you know, it it, it, it necessarily ignores a lot of facts, I think. You know, when you, when, you, when you say that this is something that was some kind of Jewish plot, there's too many plot holes in that story to, to, to sustain it, in my view. Well... See, the, the thing is, is that I think that a lot of what we consider to be evidence to the contrary of my statement is, in fact, tailored and authored by Jews. And if, and if not authored by Jews, then at a later time altered by them through translation or whatever else it may be, or by someone who's been paid by Jews or something like that. Because the cover-up of our history, and not just spiritual history, but also material history, I mean, and honestly... This part, and like I'm starting to veer into the territory of conjecture, but I, but I, I wouldn't be surprised to find out if the freaking if the wordings and writings of Martin Luther were deliberately altered to make it seem more Christian than they originally were. But honestly, that part, what I just said, that's conjecture. I personally don't have any evidence of that, but evidence of that may or may not exist. I'm not entirely sure. But um, but like but said, such you know, but such conjecture rich- becomes required to sustain this idea, right? You go from, okay, here's the evidence in support of the theory that Christianity is a Jewish plot, to here's a bunch of evidence in contravention of that, to, well, I theorize that these dastardly Jews have created that, okay? And and that that's a yeah. common pattern in these conversations that I've had. It, it, it goes from, here's a bunch of evidence of a thing in response to the contrary evidence, I I posit theories that are not supported by evidence, you know? and And just as a you know, an analysis of a thought process, that doesn't seem to, it seems to be like somebody comes at a thing with a predetermined position and will, and will justify it as they must. Well, um, and see, like, so, you know, the the, the only further really that I can say about it, um, uh, there was something else I wanted to mention, but uh, it's definitely, I definitely do recommend that at least you yourself uh, check out that website. I recommend it at your leisure, no pressure, of course. It's um, it Christianity Exposed. A, did you say was that the was that the name? Uh, Exposing Christianity. Okay. Well, you know, I um, yes. I don't know how much time I'm going to be able to devote to that. If I'm honest with you, but you know, it's uh, it, it's a it's an interesting subject to say the least of it. You know, I'm not. I'm not. I cannot, in good faith, call myself a Christian. I'm sometimes ten, tempted to do so, um, because I, I well, for for a litany of reasons, I'm not going to get into today. But like, I don't believe that. You know, I don't believe it's a historical fact that Jesus, in, uh, that that God impregnated a virgin who then gave birth to God's son, who then died for my sins. I don't believe that that's an accurate description of history, and so. On the like, on the basis of that disbelief, I, I don't think I'm I'm I don't think that I would I think I would do a dishonest thing to call myself a Christian. But the people who I find myself most in tune with these days are Christians, you know, and 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 I think that that's not and I have difficult I have a great deal of difficulty discarding that that observation because 
it seems to me that they're the ones who are being persecuted by Jews. It seems to me that the Jews are always trying to destroy them and that their convictions, their their belief that they they are obligated by God to do good on this earth and that and that they're only here as a consequence of uh, their only purpose on this earth is to you know prove themselves in an afterlife. I, that's, that might not be the best description of it, but it's it's fair enough that because of that viewpoint, they're willing to incur risks that people who don't have a God will not incur, right? Like if you don't believe that you have a, if you don't believe that you have a reward in the afterlife, then there's not much cause to suffer while alive, you know? And I don't think that you can simply replace that. I don't think that religion is something that you say, well, this religion is inferior and therefore, we're going to come up with a superior doctrine. Like you, that's actually very difficult to do, right? And and well, go ahead. Well, I, I agree with you insofar as that and, and that it, it's difficult to replace with some new thing. But what I'm te- what I'm talking about is not some new thing. It's the original thing. Like it's it's always been there. It's the original, you know, pagan traditions and pagan faith. And the thing about it is that the thing about it is. Hold on, give me just a moment. It's okay. You're doing a great job, buddy. You're one of the better callers we've had on the show. You're doing great. Oh, oh, thank you. Thank you very much. I I really appreciate you saying so. Um, So the thing is, it's like, you know, they talk about, like Christians talk about how, you know, this this rabbi from Nazareth is supposed to save you. Save you from what? Racial awareness? Uh, no, community no, no, no. with your family? No. that's, that's, That's a very recent phenomenon, people talking about it that way. Jesus is your God. Generally, you know, Jesus is going to uh, Jesus forgives your sins. Okay, and in my view, like the the historicity of that is irrelevant. What's important is that you know that you're a sinner and that you require redemption, right? And and like if people don't have that consciousness about themselves, you know, my life, even though I don't believe in Christianity per se, like my my views closely adhere. They they closely hew to that line which is i live in like a constant state of guilt like i just i operate on the assumption that i'm terrible and that i have to prove myself wrong about that every single day right and if i don't do that if if i don't like i have some awareness i've done terrible things in my life so like i have some awareness that if i'm not constantly trying to you know be a good person that i will be a monster which is closely adheres to this idea that we're all sinners right and and so like go ahead uh, and, and I mean, that's true, that you do definitely need to be a good person. That is definitely a spiritually ordained thing that you have to be a good person. However, I personally, I do not believe that me being born to this earth in a natural, like, you know, a natural process, I do not believe that I am guilty of anything. I am not a, I, am, I, I, I was not born into sin. I was born into the world from my non-Jewish mother and my non-Jewish father. And there is nothing wrong with me about that. Do I have issues that need to be addressed? Of course I do. Everyone does. But it is not a crime or a quote-unquote sin to be born and to be alive. You're not guilty of anything. Well, maybe you're not guilty of anything for being born, but it is inevitable that over the course of a, a life, uh, over the course of a life that emerges past the point of being able to form language that you will do bad things. Like, I, I I, think that, you know, it's inevitable that someone as young as two years old goes and does wrong, right? It, you know, 
Whether how much they were well, yeah. aware of it is another question. But like, you know, it, it, children will lie to their parents, say, right? They'll take, they'll steal, okay? And they'll under, they'll have some concept that what they've done is wrong, right? And, you know, they try to, you know, you educate them over the course of their lives to try to, you know, fight those impulses. But as a matter of fact, like you're, I, th- I believe that it's a reasonable statement of fact that human beings have impulses and instincts which are, which are at odds with social cooperation, okay? And they have to repress manually through their intellect those impulses, okay? And they, ha- they need a reason to do that, right? And, and you could try to explain to them, you know, well, you know, the whole country depends upon us obeying the laws or something. But, you know, they, most people require a simpler explanation for things. There's somebody watching and you're going to get caught. You're going to get in trouble is, is actually a more, you know, cognitively efficient doctrine, say. Oh, yeah. You know, and so and I guess, you know, you could you could have that with other religious traditions, clearly. But it seems to me that that's that's that one works pretty well. And then like the idea that I, I also think like the forgiveness of sins doctrine in, in Christianity is like important. Right. <clears throat> I, I thought it was great. Michael Knowles once said that Christians, they um, they deal with the abortion issue better than than left-wing supposed atheists who are just, you know, they, they worship differently, but they purport not to believe in a God. You know, he's, a, he's like, okay, well, Christians are, they take, uh, I'm failing to comprehend, remember the exact quote, but it's to the effect that Christians take abortion more in stride because they believe in forgiveness that like you know the the leftists who believe in abortion as a sacrament of their faith they have to maintain that because there's no forgiveness of sins and so if they murdered their child then they can't be forgiven for that if it's wrong say okay a christian can like a christian could go to confession and be like i I'm so sorry for what I've done. God, please forgive me. And then he could be redeemed. And then he can move, or, or she, in that case, she could be redeemed and she can move on with her life as like a whole person who is no longer damaged by her wrongdoing, you know? And well, I, 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 hear, I hear what you're saying. And my, my take on it is that, you know, a lot of these concepts, you know, these concepts that ring true and ring sensible and things like that, they... Christ, the reason why it seems legitimate is because Christianity was created as a freaking alternative to the pagan truths, like things such as the forgiveness point that you brought up and other things like that. Those also had their roots in paganism, the paganism that everybody was practicing. It's like if they created, if the Jews created this false religion that is Christianity, and there was Literally, it was completely and totally on its face, alien to everybody around. Nobody would have ever believed in it. Nobody, w- everybody would have seen it for what it was, and we wouldn't have the situation that we have today. You know, it was that's why the Jews stole from the pagan myths and just kept most of the myths intact, but then replaced the gods with Jewish characters and then just skewed the morality to fit Jewish morality, where which, what was once considered to be the high octave was now the lowest of the low and was evil and deplorable. And what was once, you know, unthinkable is now the moral standard by which people strive. And, I mean, there, is, there are litanies upon litanies of evidence of this having taken place. And 
Yeah, I mean, freaking, I don't have all that evidence on hand. I of understand, course, but I mean, I did, in the course of a call into a radio show, it's difficult to produce all the documents. I get that. Well, you know, buddy, I uh, yeah. I have other people on hold, and I got to move on. But you've been a great call. I hope you do it again, oh, and we can we can pick this up another time. I'll let you uh, I'll let you wrap up with whatever following thoughts you have. Oh no, that's 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 all I had to say, Chris. And you know, I appreciate you giving me an ear and being receptive to what I have to say. And you know what, man? You know, freaking, you know, let's unite the white, man. You know, let's 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 freaking let's put this let's put Judea down for the ten count. Thank you very much for the call, my friend. Two one seven six eight eight one four three three. If you'd like to be on the program, and the more you told, the less I have to. So please do give us a call. Caller, you're on the radical agenda. What's your agenda? Oh, this is Hatting. Hey, Hatting. Um, I I am um, I actually studied Latin and ancient Greek. Uh huh. Um, in graduate school and so i've read ancient texts so i know some things that most people don't know about um about the ancient roman and greek world um one of the interesting pieces of literature that i read was a a novel a roman novel called the golden ass written by a carthaginian named apuleius and um, the interesting thing about that is that the last chapter of this ancient novel has an initiation into the cult of Isis. And this initiation into the cult of Isis is exactly the same as the ritual that uh, Jesus undergoes the night before his crucifixion. It's exactly the same ritual. They put a, uh, a reed in his hand as a kind of uh, a royal scepter, and they put uh, what could be called a crown of thorns on his head, which is something I think has been misconstrued. I don't think it was supposed to be a torture. I think it was a crown basically made out of a palm leaf with the point sticking up. Um, it's exactly the same ritual. And there are other parallels between, uh, you know, uh, Jesus and the cult of Isis. For one thing, they're uh, nailing to a cross. It was an unusual thing to do. And they did it. There was an occasion where there was a scandal involving priests of Isis in Rome. And these priests of Isis were nailed to crosses, specifically because it was believed that they could turn into birds and fly away. So you have to nail them to keep them from doing that. So this punishment that was inflicted on Jesus is exactly the peculiar punishment that was inflicted on these priests of Isis around what was supposed to be about the same time. So there's that. There's huge overlap there. Um, The caller talked about Asclepius. is one of the Gospels, I believe, that emphasizes Jesus as a healer uh, seems to be portraying Jesus as kind of a super Asclepius. Um, that Asclepius was a Greek god, uh, or I guess he was a god, yeah. Um, and there's some uh, there's some other resonances with some other ancient pagan religions. There was this uh, savior god in Egypt called Osirapis. Um, uh, people sometimes point out that our Christmas uh, uh, corresponds to um, who is that Persian 
there was this Persian. There was several of these religions that were, they're called late pagan religions, and they're all sort of, they, they, they all sort of use Platonism for their substance. And an interesting thing, I just learned this recently, very interesting book for learning about Jews is uh, Israel Shahak, S-H-A-H-A-K, Jewish History, Jewish Religion, The Weight of 3,000 Years. It was published in the mid-90s. And he says, <clears throat> he refers to an authority uh, scholar named Moses Hadass, who says that uh, Talmudic Judaism is based on Plato. And it was devised, uh, as says, he says, as early as the Maccabean period, which is 142 to 63 BC. So they devised, they, they basically modeled their society as it exists today, or as it exists for many centuries, on this theory of, a, of an ideal society that Plato put together. Not Plato's Republic, however, but uh, another long work by Plato that almost nobody reads called The Laws. All right, And it's basically, it, it really outlines a, a totalitarian system where nobody's allowed to think for themselves. Well, I, I think uh, that you're drawing all these parallels to different things, and I, I don't think that that's surprising or controversial. I mean, you know, I, I forget the precise quote or where in the Bible it is, but I mean, I, th I think at some point Jesus says, you know, the laws are already in your heart or something to that effect. Like, you know these things intuitively, and that's and, and there's a commonality between uh, most religious doctrines to a certain extent, right? There's some non-absolute recognition of property, you know, there's something called marriage, right? You know, all of these, you know, all of these traditions have something because what they're doing is explaining our nature, right? And, and... You know they differ in varying degrees, but fundamentally, what what they're all doing is trying to provide an explanation for what we're already doing. Don't you think? Well, the point that I'm making, because the the caller, um, I think, gave an oversimplified view. Uh, he's basically saying all this stuff came to us from the Jews, and that's not the case. Okay, I got you. The Jews. The Jews picked up a lot of things from from us, really. I mean, or from the ancient uh, ancient Mediterranean world, anyway. You know, they picked up uh, a lot of things, an enormous amount from Plato. Um, <clears throat> uh, Christianity looks very similar to some ancient uh, late pagan religions. Several of them, actually. The only the only thing that's lacking in those other religions is the connection to uh, the Jews. Uh, um, and uh, I, this is an important point here: um, the, the Jews in in the ancient Mediterranean were a, a they were a proselytizing religion. They actually did seek converts, but there's a huge barrier to converting to Judaism, and that's circumcision. Yeah. However, um, they they would they had this class of people that they accepted uh, as associates called metuentes, which means God fearers. 
right, for Jehovah fearers. And uh, you could, I guess, uh, hang out with the Jews if you worship their God without getting the circumcision, although you probably had a lower status with them. Um, a lot of women apparently did convert to Judaism because almost the vast majority of the DNA in Ashkenazi Jews is not of Levantine origin. It's of Southern European origin. Um, and I wanted to say this, uh, sort of a defense of Christianity in Europe, uh, although I see a lot of problems with it. I, I make this point to Adam Green, or have made this point to him, and he just doesn't seem to want to know. Uh, supersessionism is something in Christianity that is very important, that distinguishes it from groups that the Jews actually fostered, like these uh, Metuentes, right? Supersessionism is the doctrine in Christianity that says that the religion of the Jews is obsolete. Now, the, the Metuentes didn't believe that the religion of the Jews is obsolete. And we see that there are forms of Christianity that the Jews uh, have supported and promoted, called premillennialism, uh, that do not say that the religion of the Jews is obsolete or at least they don't push that, uh, you know. Um, in Vatican II, there was a tremendous pressure. There was Jewish lobbying to try to get Vatican II to announce that, uh, uh, that to retract supersessionism. And the, and the reason why, uh, an important reason for that is supersessionism is the negation of the, of the covenant that, that gives uh, the Holy Land to the Jews. It, 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 supersessionism invalidates Zionism. Right. Officially, the Catholic Church is still supersessionist. Right. You know, but you, you can't always tell that from the statements that some of the clergy and hierarchy make. Um, well, that's the thing, right? So, so, I mean, you know, look, I, I think that, you know, to the broader conglomeration of ideas here, say, you know, Cultures come into contact with one another and and traditions rub off, okay? And that's a totally natural phenomenon in the spread of ideas. Um, I, I think that you're, I agree with your assessment that the guy oversimplifies matters, and I think that that's a requisite component of positing the theory that he posits, right? That, like, you, you know, when you come with something and you say that, you know, something is all one thing, there, that's almost never the case, um, and you know, the, um, you know, Vatican two, uh, I read a book in prison titled God's banker or God's bankers, which is basically about the Vatican central bank, which is a pretty fascinating read. Um, and you know, the, the theory posited there is that the, you know, the, the, the Pope, the guy who was Pope at the time of Vatican two was suspected to be a homosexual. Right. And so you can imagine why that guy would have some, some cause to, to, uh, to uh, to subvert, you know, some doctrines of the Catholic Church, say. And, you know, but we don't John turn around 23rd. and say that, we don't turn around and say that, you know, all of everything since Vatican II is a plot by homosexuals, right? That that would not be particularly sensible. And so, you know, it, it, you know this is, it was an element of something and nothing happens in politics or society without a convergence of diverse interests, right? And so, you know, that's kind of, you know, explains well, a lot, I'd say.
Well, uh, as I mentioned, the Jews have gotten a lot of things actually from our people. Our people actually do come up with some bad ideas from time to time. Yeah, I've, <laughs> I've witnessed a bit of that. Um, and um, Jews will notice some of these things and say, hey, we can use that. All right. Um, anti-racism was not originally a Jewish idea. Uh, you can find anti-racism in in um, Augustine of Hippo, all right, uh, in his uh, City of God. Um, he was he was so anti-racist that he said it was impossible for people to live on the other side of the world because that's too much division in humanity. It, we we all have to be the same tribe because uh, we're the tribe of Jesus now, right? That that that's this ancient idea of Augustinian Christianity. Um, and I, this is an important point. Um, communism really did not come from the Jews. All right, I already mentioned that they copied a lot of stuff from Plato, but uh, if you actually read the Communist Manifesto, it refers to the fact that a communist movement already existed. And there, it was not a Jewish movement, particularly uh, Richard Wagner, the German composer, was a, he called himself a communist at that time, you know? So, there you go. They took it over and made use of it for their own purpose. And my opinion is that, that what Marx laid out was really an attempt to derail the communist movement because what he says is um, capitalism is going to self-destruct. You don't have to do anything. That's a, the essential point of the Communist Manifesto. Yeah, that's that's you want to derail a movement, tell them to sit there and wait for it to manifest itself. Uh, so that's a that's an interesting way of putting it. You know, I, I think that I am not I am unfamiliar with the pre Marx history of communism that you refer to, but I think it's plausible because, you know, it, it preys on certain impulses, right? It it preys on certain weaknesses and in instincts, say. And so it's it seems to me that, yeah, like it, it, Marx sort of like refined this, if you will. He, he articulated it and, and created mm -hmm. a more cohesive doctrine, but it was something that, it, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, it had to predate Marx or it would never have caught on such as it did. Um, it, yeah. it, it was weaponized, whether whether it was weaponized against the communists themselves or whether it was like, you know, this this Jew is like, oh, this is catastrophically destructive. I must promote it, I guess, is a is a thing that, probably we could not figure out in the space of this phone call but um it's an interesting it's an interesting observation in any case um so i uh, uh, if, uh go go ahead well i i was just I, as i say but my my opinion is that the idea was to derail it um and uh when what would happen with the bolshevik revolution i believe is Actually, there was originally, in the spring of 1917, there was going to be, there was this liberal revolution, and uh, the government was led by this half-Jew named Kerensky. And that liberal revolution had been supported by Jacob Schiff, you know, Jew, Jewish banker. And um, I don't know that they supported the Bolshevik revolution, but what happened was that this liberal government that, had been established in the spring of 1917 was was about to be overthrown. There was something called the Kornilov affair. A Russian army officer made a move to try to establish 
a military dictatorship, in my opinion, was the Bolshevik Revolution was Plan B because the, it didn't look like the liberal government was going. I think Jews in general tend to prefer a liberal government with a certain amount of chaos in society rather than a communist society because the if you look at what actually happened in the Soviet Union, there was too much order and accountability for them. And uh, Jews actually in the long run didn't do very well in the Soviet Union. There was a big purge in the 1930s you may have heard about. Uh, Trotsky and all his buddies, uh, you know, either got executed or left, you know, and it ended up being much less Jewish. And uh, if you read also Kevin McDonald, he talks about the fact that uh, Stalin continued reducing the numbers of Jews in the Soviet government even after the Second World War. And he always countered it with public relations measures where he presented some award to a Jew, <laughs> you know, so that he wouldn't be called anti-Semitic. You know, he can't call Stalin anti-Semitic. Look, he just gave an award to a Jew. Meanwhile, he's reducing the number of Jews in the bureaucracy. Well, that's, you know, that's one of the interesting things that I learned about the Soviet Union was reading about Joseph Stalin and, and discussing him at some length with a fellow by the name of Victor Boot while we were in prison together. Um... And, uh, well, I shouldn't, I'm not going to try to describe Victor Boot's, you know, thoughts on the subject, but he, uh, he told me a lot about Joseph Stalin and gave me a, a new appreciation for the man, which I thought was extremely unlikely when he started to try to do it. I'm like, oh, you're going to tell me how great Joseph Stalin is. That's probably not going to go over very well. And, <laughs> but we had a pretty interesting discussion about it. And when I got out of prison, I listened to an audiobook titled Stalin's War. And it gave some history that, that, reflects on what you're saying that basically you know you think about people in the united states anyway tend to think of joseph stalin as you know two steps below hitler on the evil scale um and mm. and you know there's cause for disputing that whole category of idea but among them is like you know stalin emerges basically as an opposition to trotsky right and so for all, you know, people's yeah. problems with Joseph Stalin, does anybody think that they'd have been better off with a Soviet Union run by by Trotsky? And I think that the answer to that question is no. And so like, you know, that yeah, it, that was yeah. a pretty interesting phenomenon and he was and he was and his whole thing, like when he's rising to power, his whole thing is, you know, are you with me or are you with Trotsky, you know, and tried to kill him and all this shit. So like, you know, and 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 there was absolutely an anti-Semitic element to it that he's like you know, as you say, he was removing Jews from power in the Soviet Union. And so if you're trying to do that, it's not surprising to me that a certain degree of brutality would be fucking required, right? Like, you would have to just be like, look, we're not, we're done with the fucking bullshit. We've got to get rid of these fucking people. And if people get hurt in the fucking process, so be it, right? Yeah, well, I, 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 I think that, hmm, uh, you know, I, all I can tell you is that, uh, I, you know, I, I, when I took teaching courses, you know, education courses, I had actually com a communist instructor running the class, and the textbook written by a communist department head included some bullcrap that was taught in the Soviet Union, you know, at, from Jewish theorists, and it's stuff that didn't work. And what Stalin did was he got rid of all the Jewish bullcrap that didn't work you know, before he was, before he became the chairman, right? And for one thing, he modeled the Soviet education system on the Prussian education system. Um, and even Hitler, Adolf Hitler, 
had some admiration for Stalin, if if the table talk can be trusted at all. He, he thought, thought Stalin was remarkable, uh, and he would, uh, if he conquered the Soviet Union, he would make uh, Stalin the satrap of it. Yeah, yeah, they 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 had some um, some in, some back and forth, say um, Hitler and Stalin, and so that's an interesting uh, mm-hmm. it's an interesting history. I, I can't recommend highly enough the book Stalin's War. Uh, it was a it was a great. Uh, well, I listened to the audio book, so I didn't read it. But you know, it's a great read, great listen. I can't recommend it highly enough. Hatting, I it's uh, I, it's been a great call as it always is. But I do have to move on and get some other things in before we're done here. So uh, I'll let you Certainly. wrap up, friend. Well, I've, that's, that's it. Thanks for letting me talk. Thank you very much for the call, my friend. 217-688-1433. You like to be on the program, and the more you talk, the less I have to. So please do give us a call. Uh, you on hold, stand by. i got to get to a couple of things before I before I get back to the phones. Um, let's go first things first. Oh, I'm sorry. I went to ask Hatting. Uh, National Socialist worldview has not been updated in a while. Uh, Hatting, if you're if you're hearing me, maybe you go to the Odyssey chat and inform them of where you're writing. Now, I know he writes at um, uh, it's CODA or like a Committee on uh, something about the Holocaust or the uh, Institute for Historical Review. I think he's written at. I think he's mostly writing for other publications to answer um, uh, Fasher Sloth's question. I'm sorry I didn't get to your question. I, I told you that I'd ask him before I hung up, but it, it was just things went all over the place. I'm very sorry about that. Um, but Hatting, you know, he's often in the Odyssey chat, so maybe uh, maybe he'll visit us before the end of the show, and if not, you can ask him another time. <clears throat> 217-688-1433, you like to be on the program. Uh, you know, there was another thing that I put out in the email today. Uh, we talked about Jews a lot today. Happens from time to time on the radical agenda. You know, it's not lost on me at all that many of you hearing the uh, sound of my voice have sympathy for the people of Palestine and no shortage of uh, legitimate grievances about their Jewish neighbors. It's neither lost on me that the government of the United States tends to be operated by people who are either ideologically devoted to or otherwise being blackmailed and extorted by the government of Israel. So it is odd indeed that Christopher Wray would go before Congress and state that pro-Hamas rioters were not being investigated from the by the FBI. This from the man who told Congress just before the FBI broke my door down that white supremacy was America's number one terror threat at that. And, you know, contrary to the neo-Nazi boogeyman hiding under the bed of every Democrat, there's actually some substantial evidence that Islamic fanatics have a well-earned reputation for blowing up buildings and murdering the innocent while screaming Allahu Akbar on their way to meet the first of many non-goat vaginas in paradise, so even if you think the Jews deserve to be slaughtered, it's hard not to define Hamas as a terrorist group. They are a clandestine non-state actor operating across international borders in the business of killing non-military personnel for political purposes. It's fairly straightforward. So when left-wing fanatics gather in the streets and call for the eradication of a government from the river to the sea, it boggles the mind to think that the FBI simply considers this the very essence of our Constitution while conjuring the most outrageous of schemes to humiliate, murder, and imprison American citizens with no operational plans for violence and no interests outside of their own country. It would not be the first time Ray had lied, of course, without what he was doing. That might be the most plausible explanation— Another is that the Jewish state appreciates these demonstrations as a means by which to keep the news coverage sympathetic to their ethnic cleansing campaign. To stop the riots would be to remind Americans that Israel's problems are not theirs, and this would be the end of the Jewish state. 
217-688-1433. You like to be on the program, and the more you talk, the less I have to. So please do give us a call. Caller, you are on the Radical Agenda. What's your agenda? Yeah, that's you, pal. Uh-oh. You've been on hold for a long time. I'd hate to hang up on you, pal. That would be really, I'd feel bad if I had to do that. But I might just have to do it if you don't say something real soon. Man, that's something. Well, friend, better luck next time, buddy. 217-688-1433. You like to be on the program. And the more you talk, the less I have to, so please do give us a call. Caller, you're on the Radical Agenda. What's your agenda? Um, hey, I had I wanted to talk about COVID, actually, what I would call the COVID scamdemic, but um, I feel compelled to comment on something you said at the beginning of the show. Okay. Um, I don't know if there's time to get to both topics. Well, um, why don't you try to make to it concise? On... All right. I wanted to talk about uh, drugs, marijuana, all that stuff. Um, yeah, I would certainly agree. Anything done in excess can be abused and, and can be bad, including marijuana. But, um, you know, the difference between a leftist and a libertarian is that of personal responsibility. So leftists, you know, they want drugs to be legal because they want to create a screwed up society of, uh, people who have to run to the government for help. And, um, you know, alcoholism ran rampant in the uh, Soviet Union. Now, I, I, I think actually other drugs were, were illegal there, but uh, alcohol can be just as, actually just as dangerous, if not more dangerous than, uh, than uh, marijuana can. But, um, you know, the war on drugs is totally unconstitutional. So I think that if government's going to exist, that it should strictly adhere to the U.S. Constitution. And there's no constitutional basis for the war on drugs. And there really wasn't a big drug problem in this country until after the war on drugs started and the creation of the welfare state. And um, it is it, kind of a compromised position. Um, I would support drug testing for welfare recipients. I, mean, I don't think the welfare program should exist either. But uh, being that they do exist, then... Um, you know, perhaps I think one could make an argument that if, you know, if you want to get on welfare, you got to test clean for drugs. But, um, you know, um, it's all, it's ultimately up to personal responsibility. And, you know, if there's no welfare state, then uh, people are going to be responsible for their own lives. And uh, if you do drugs, you're going to screw yourself up and it's going to have consequences. You're going to, you know, have, uh, you know, you could die, you could have a bad life, you could lose money. And uh, the market will punish you. Well, you know, I, I think that there's there's Social Darwinism. Yeah, there's some merit to that theory. There's no doubt about that. You know, um, I I we've talked about this subject before, so I don't want to spend a, a whole hell of a lot of time on it, buddy. But like, you know, there's a progression that is predictable here, which is you know, people go and they do something that's debilitating and then they require subsidy. And if they are, you know, if they exist in large enough numbers, they'll vote for it and they'll get it. I mean, that's democracy in a nutshell. Right. And so, you know, a responsible government, um, has an interest in promoting productive, healthy behaviors among its citizens and discouraging those behaviors that lead to the outcome I just described. And so, 
we've discussed this before. I know that you know you have a different take on it and whatnot. You know the the problem that I have with the libertarian theory is that it's just it's at odds with with how things tend to turn out, right? You know, it, it, you can say that there should be some some impermeable, impenetrable, universal law. And you can have that opinion all day long, but as soon as, you know, a bunch of people get together in, in greater numbers than you or with superior force, they'll just go ahead and impose that upon you. And the libertarians, with their largely hyper-individualistic, you know, tendencies, you know, f find themselves, you know, in practice incapable of resisting that, which is, you know, which is the whole story of the history of the movement. That You know, it's not... You know, in practice, it just doesn't. The theory is great. The theory is perfect. The theory is a hundred percent perfect. I'll give you. I'll give you the perfect theory. It's just that you know, it it's at odds with, you know, their ideas don't correspond to reality. You can you can make this very rational argument for how things ought to be, and then the fact that they in fact are not so, um, you know, sort of tends to tank the whole thing. Is my take on it now. We we cannot yeah, well, we cannot spend the last half hour of this show discussing the merits of libertarianism. So, you know, I'll invite you to say something yeah, quick well, about that. And move on to the COVID I'm, thing or something. Okay. Well, this is the last thing I was going to say about that. It's, um, it also leads to the corruption of of law enforcement and uh, who've been caught, you know, dealing drugs and things of that nature, using it to confiscate property and uh, politicians involved in that. It's led to widespread corruption with the money. And then I think it also ties to the immigration issue because I think some of the people running across the border, part of their motive for that is to sell drugs, which are profitable because of the black market. But any, anyway, uh, I, I'd like to, I'll move on to COVID. Yeah. Um, so when you were, when you were in prison, um, you were in prison during the whole COVID hysteria. Yeah. Um, number one, um, did you, I mean, what were your thoughts on it? I mean, just my thoughts on it. I, I thought from day one, the whole thing was a scam. Uh, I thought from day one, I never bought into it. I thought it was a, a, an excuse for a, uh, a power grab and a money grab and part of the, uh, depopulation agenda. But, uh, anyway, what did you think about it in prison and did the COVID vaccine get pushed on you in prison uh, did you take it? What did you do? What happened with the other okay. prisoners? Were you forced to wear a mask, et cetera? Yeah, I can tell you about that. So, you know, when when the virus, you know, I get I get arrested in January of 2020 and, you know, two months later, not even, you know, the whole world falls apart because without the radical agenda, how could mankind survive? Right. And so uh, COVID was ah. a direct consequence of the radical agenda not airing. It's obvious. But jokes aside, friend, um, the uh, you know, the. You know what you said, and I think that I think you probably, upon reflection, would understand that you've made something of an overstatement. The idea that it was a total scam is not is not, I don't think, accurate because you know there was a virus. Like the virus <laughs> spread very rapidly, and people were legitimately scared about it. And you know, I was I was, but I I was able to discern just uh, from the early news coverage. You know, when you have every news outlet in the country screaming with competing hysteria about anything. Something very wrong is happening, in my view. Okay, it 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 takes on a character that's clearly a, it's a it's a it's propaganda, and so like you know you do have to ask the question like why are they doing this? They're taking advantage of this scenario that has emerged to accomplish goals. Is is what my my first observations just of the news coverage were. I, I remarked early on before they locked the jail down, 
that that if I were if I were in if I were out in the media business at that time, I would have just made a news station that didn't talk about COVID, and I would be the most popular channel in the country if I had done that because. People are like, what the hell else is going on in the world? You're talking about COVID all day. Shut the fuck up already. You know, um, it, it was it was so conspicuous that you, you had to understand that there were political forces at work. Say. Um, it, and then what what my experience of it was after that was, you know, then they locked the jail down. OK. And when they locked the jail down, I mean, you know, I had a really rough bid as a consequence of that. You know, you're not usually locked in your cell all day. Like some people have this image of being incarcerated that you're just locked in a cage and bored and have nothing to do. That's not what jail is. It's not what prison is, certainly. You know, there's a lot of activity, right? They have to give you things to do or all fucking hell will break loose. These people will murder one another if you don't distract them. Well, that's exactly what ended up happening with COVID. They did a 23-hour-a-day fucking lockdown where you're locked in your cell all day and you get to come out for one hour a day to shower and make your phone calls. And and where I was, for the most part, it's two men to a cell. So you're locked in your fucking you're locked in your cell with your cellmate. And your cellmate's an asshole. It's, it's a fucking dangerous situation can emerge. And so, you know, and and they didn't really they didn't really try to enforce masks on us that much. They they sort of like. You know, they got these directives, but the people who were in charge of the correctional facility sort of understood that, you know, that was never going to work, right? I remarked on um, the the piece I published titled Beauty Revisited. I'm sorry, not Beauty Revisited. This was in um, Of Some Consequence on Surreal Politiques. I said, you know, I remarked that the when I was in jail, that the people outside the walls had it worse than us. And then later I came to realize that might not be such a funny joke after all. Because that was literally what happened. Like I'm watching all this like crazy stuff with the masking and stuff, and in and in jail and prison, like they would not try to make you wear your your mask, right? They would not. They they were making the the mask mandates were more strictly imposed outside of jail and prison than they were inside of jail and prison. And so like that's literally what my experience of it was. That I'm in I'm in jail and prison and not facing the same. The, the same terrifying impositions that, that the people outside were. For the vaccine, when the vaccine first came out, they um, they started offering it to people, and then they started trying to incentivize it. And this was, it, it, they, they kept on coming up with new ways to try to get you to do it. They didn't try to force you, but, it, you know, some of the methods were, were somewhat coercive, like, um, you know, if you if you took your vaccine, then you would get moved to a housing area with other people who had been vaccinated. If you took your vaccine, then when you went to court or whatever, you wouldn't have to sit in, in quarantine for two weeks. You know, you would have to, you know, every time you went outside of the facility, you had to sit in a two week quarantine and quarantine is more restrictive than your regular housing area. So there was, you know, a lot of there's a lot of incentive to avoid that. Um, and so, like, you know, there there were those were some of the incentives. when i got to the prison when i got to federal prison they were sending it's funny i laughed at it when i saw it they were like okay well you know the housing unit with the most uh with the most vaccinated people will get pizza was one of the things they did so what you're actually doing there is you're actually trying to get inmates to coerce one another you know to get the vaccine like you're actually creating an incentive for violence by doing this that like yo we're trying to get this shit nigga why don't you give us some get your fucking vaccine you know and thankfully they didn't they, this was not that you know the prisoners didn't buy that horseshit they were like get the what if you're offering me pizza to take it you're trying to harm me <laughs> it was kind of the attitude you know um 
And so they, they tried a lot of different ways to encourage it. You know, some of those things bordered on coercive, but it was not like, take this or else. You know, it was, here's the benefits that you'll get if you don't. And you've already been, you've already been suffering the consequences of, of all these things. You're just, you're just getting a way out of it through this, you see. So it wasn't like, do this or else. It was, we're making all these impositions and the way to get out of them then is to take the vaccine, you see. Uh, yeah, I'm actually kind of surprised they didn't force you to take it. They would have had, they would have been bogged down in ceaseless litigation if they did, you know. Um, and even like, so you, ne- so you never took it. Oh, I never you took it. You didn't take it. No, right? I got the virus twice. Okay. I got, I got so, sick. I got sick in, I got sick in pretrial detention, and I got sick at the federal prison. Um, and so like, okay. you know, and like they were doing like it was crazy. Like when when it first started getting crazy. Like, they were just springing people left and right. Like, I thought I might get out of jail on bail because of the COVID thing. They were letting fucking illegal immigrants, like, everybody was getting out of jail. They're like, oh, because of COVID, everybody's life is in danger. And if you could articulate any sort of health concern, you're you're going home with a bracelet, okay? Um, I didn't have any such health concern to, to articulate, sadly. But, you know, they were letting out, you know, you know, illegal immigrants charged with violent crimes were getting out with an ankle bracelet. It was sick. And so did you think about making something up just so you could get out? I did. And like I I, I went so far as to be like, whoa, you know, I've gotten fucking fat while I'm here. Like, you know, I'm technically obese. Like, let me out on the count of that. (laughs) You know, they you know, it was not it did not go over. uh, It did not go over well at all. You know, and and so like, but you know, the vaccine. I had a new. I still have a nuanced opinion on it. You know, when I was very concerned that my parents were going to die, dude. Like I thought that my, you know, my parents. You know, like most white people, my parents are older than me, and I am not a young man. And so like, you know, and they have they have they've had health problems over the years, and I'm looking at this fucking virus, and you know, the news coverage is telling me that you know people, older people with, you know, certain different types of conditions, some of which applied to my parents you know, we're at greater risk of death. And I'm like, I might spend the next 30 fucking years in prison. And I don't want my, I don't want to, I don't want my mother to die before I can kiss her without a sheet of glass between us. And so like my, my initial view of the vaccine was, well, I'm not taking that fucking Democrat poison, but yeah, my mother and my father who I love and I care for, and I want to survive, they should go fucking take it because the, the risk uh, of the vaccine in my view at the time was like, you know, it's more of a long-term risk. Whereas my mom could go catch a fucking cold and die tomorrow you know and so i was like yeah go take that thing but once they started in with the boosters and all this fucking nonsense i'm like no and and because not because i even doubted the original vaccine but because the virus mutated so rapidly that you were um the the virus mutated so rapidly that by the time the vaccine came around you were actually vaccinating against a virus that no longer existed okay so you know omicron is fucking nonsense you know, they it, you can't develop the vaccine before it before it mutates enough that you're you're vaccinating against something else, and so the, it became ineffective. And now you're just fucking taking something. It be it, it ended up becoming like a a loyalty oath to the Democrat Party. You're just demonstrating. You know, it's 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 like I'm going to go walk across broken glass. It's the same kind of ritual where you're like I'm going to go do this dangerous thing and harm myself because I want to demonstrate my loyalty to my extremist organization. And that's what the that's what the vaccine ultimately became. So I told my parents like. Yeah, go take the vaccine. And then I was like, no, don't get a booster. Are you out of your fucking mind? They're still giving you the fucking the vaccine that's supposed to, you know, mitigate the damage of the virus four fucking strains ago. 
Um, yeah, well, you know, um, you know, kind of funny that you mentioned this because um, I had the exact opposite experience uh, with, with with my parents, and um, you know, frankly, I I think you made a mistake telling your parents to to take the vaccine. I was actually telling my parents to not take the vaccine. I was trying to red pill them, and I was telling them about Bill Gates' depopulation agenda. I was I was telling them about the statistics with COVID and how it was being manipulated, and uh, how hospitals were being paid federal grant money to report any death of anyone that had a had a coronavirus in their system, which is anybody that's ever had a common cold. Yeah, and I understand. If, having, if you, know, if you tested part. positive yeah, was, for COVID, if you showed up in a morgue with a bullet in your head and you had COVID antibodies from a prior infection, they would record you as a COVID-related death. And the reason that they did that, in my view, was to blame more deaths on Donald Trump. It was a completely political operation. I don't think that that was fundamentally like... A, a depopulation agenda to get everybody to take the vaccine. I think that's crackpot shit. Like what they wanted well, to what, okay, hey, well, hang I, on, I, let I, me finish my fucking sentence, okay? <laughs> it, what what they were doing, it was plain to see that once the once the virus happened, okay? Once the virus happened, all of the forces in the country that wanted to destroy Donald Trump were like this is fucking perfect, okay? You know, Bill Maher had said pretty early on in the Trump presidency, you know what we need? We need a recession because when there's a recession, the president doesn't get reelected, right? So, like, that was straightforwardly the plan. That's why the Democrats were like, oh, we're going to fucking shut down California and New York, okay? Like, they, you know, they were willing to fucking impose upon their populations, you know, the largest economies in the country in order to create a fucking recession in order to take donald trump out of office they took it that fucking seriously and like i think that that was probably the the explanation you could explain more rationally so much of the covid hysteria by that by that motive than you can by some of the other things that i've i've heard people say you know i don't think that there's any particular you know you know the people who govern us are not presently particularly concerned with our fucking well-being right it, 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 but they're not they don't they they can't conceivably benefit from our from our total extermination or whatever the idea that the government is out to you know eradicate the population is is preposterous they want to change the demographics but you know they and and there's reasons that they want to do that that are that are articulable but probably beyond the scope of what we're going to get to tonight that they you know what they what they did they, they can't benefit from taxing dead people right they need human beings to go to work and do things so that they can fucking you know they're a parasite they need their sustenance so like you know these this idea that the government's trying to feed us all fucking poison and kill us i think is is kind of crazy well let me tell you what happened okay so my parents were not taking the vaccine at first and then um i I, I was out of communication with them for several weeks and uh, my mother has this friend who's a stupid Democrat and she went out, her friend got the vaccine and then, you know, kind of pushed them to do it. So my mother went out and got it. She got the first shot. She didn't have any side effects. And then she dragged my father out to get it. Well, my father had side effects. He was hospitalized for five days after that. And then about six months later, he had a stroke. And was the stroke connected to the vaccine or not? You know, I don't know for sure, but I suspect it, you know, I, I think it probably was because, uh, you know, a lot of people have called it the clot shot. And uh, it's just, it was just very mysterious. He didn't, didn't have any problem 
with that before. And then six months later, he has a stroke. Um, my father did not go back and take the second vaccine. Now, a friend of mine who, who I thought would have been red-pilled enough to not take it, um, he applied for a job. He was out of work. And the place he was applying for a job, they said they would only hire him if he took the vaccine. Now, it later turned out that they had a religious exemption, but he didn't know about this at the time. Anyway, he went out. He's there's a guy. Uh, it's maybe like 39, 40, uh, maybe 41, something like that. He was healthy, healthy guy, you know, healthy as a horse. Anyway, he went out, got the first shot. He said he was sore for like a week. And ever since then, he's been having vision problems, um, to, to this day. So he went and got the shot. I think it was, uh, late 2021 and he's been having, and he had no vision problems before this. Well, if you took so, the shot uh, in late 2021, you fucking deserve what you get, in my view. Like it, like I said, my, my view of the original vaccine was, okay, there's a fucking panic. Like, everything that was done at the beginning of the thing, I can pardon, okay? For, you know, 60 days to slow the spread, nonsense like this, okay, fine, right? What, you know, when, I think it's a perfectly reasonable public health policy to be like, there's a rapidly spreading virus, we don't understand it, it might have been a Chinese bioweapon, Everybody stop fucking moving while we figure this out. You you create the vaccine, you know, and like I know I, there's people who have broader skepticism of vaccines, and I, I I think a lot of that stuff is fucking crazy. You brought up the Bill Gates thing. I know that Bill Gates said we're going to reduce world population through vaccines or something. You know, it's that's ominous to say the least of it. But you know, vaccination is a is a plausible theory, right? You you know you, when you are exposed to some portion of a virus and your body creates the antibodies to deal with it you know you can you know anybody who's ever had fucking chicken pox or went to a chicken pox party when they were a kid understands this so like you know you know vaccination is not categorically sinister and and when people talk about it that way i i, I end up tuning out because i realize that they're fundamentally unserious like vaccination is real and whether every vaccination that we fucking impose upon our population today is a good idea is a different topic of discussion. And if you just say vaccination is a sinister plot, then you're you're excluded from serious conversations. But like, you know, the, the mRNA vaccines is like, OK, we're going to have your body produce this spike protein. Your your pro, your body's going to attack it and then it's going to realize that this is dangerous and get rid of the virus. That's a tr that's a perfectly plausible theory that a well-intentioned person can come up with and pursue. And mRNA was not, you know, they didn't come up with it, you know, in this context. It was a it was a technology that had been, you know, it, it, that had been worked on for some period of time. When the guys who came up with the concept of it became one of the most outspoken critics of the COVID vaccine. You know, I forget his name off the top of my head, but I'm sure you've seen him. Now you know who I'm talking about. I'm confident. And so like you know, the the when the when the virus comes out, when the virus is out there, and it's like people are fucking dying left and right because that really did happen, buddy. Like a lot of people fucking died from COVID, and I got I fucking Whoa. I was I was sick as fuck when I got COVID, dude. I was I became I became skeptical of how severe the virus was. I saw a lot of people get it in jail, you know, and I didn't see anybody die from it in the federal prison system. You know, there were dozens of people fucking died. And like and and what they were doing in a lot of cases, you know, they're they're over reporting deaths in some places. And the uh, and they were. Uh, sorry, I, I was distracted by uh, <laughs> edgy. Chris is my. 
what do you call? It? Sorry, sorry, sorry. I was distracted by money because I'm I'm a I'm a Jew. I'm kidding. Uh, so um, they were getting them out of the prison, sending them to the hospital, and then allowing them to die in the hospital so that they didn't die in the federal prison system it was one of the things that was going on in federal prison. And this was conspicuous. Everybody understood it. So like, you know, it, it's perfectly reasonable for me to be concerned that my parents are going to fucking get killed from this thing. Because if I'm a fucking, if I'm a, if I'm a, if I'm a fucking bodybuilder, at, you know, who's reasonably healthy, who can, who's like fucking combat ready. And I'm laid up in fucking bed from this fucking thing. My, my parents who are, you know, just, we'll just say upwards of 50 years old and and who have had health problems over the course of their life, they're going to suffer more from that than I am. And so, you know, sure, if, me... if millions of people take this shot and they're not fucking dead within weeks of taking it, then, like, that's that's not a crazy thing to think that, you know, that this can help them. Now, again, once, they, once, the, once they're vaccinating, once it becomes obvious that they're vaccinating against a virus that no longer exists, that that spike protein mutates too rapidly for the mRNA process to keep up with, well, now there's no good reason to do that. And and that's you know that's my that's my take on it. I, I we're gonna I got people on hold and there's ten minutes left, so let's try to wrap it up. Go ahead. All right. Well, maybe I'll have to call back in to continue this discussion. You left a lot to unpack there, but I just want to say um, just my own anecdotal evidence. Um, I came in contact during lar- with large numbers of people um, during the whole thing. Um, I didn't wear a mask um, unless I was someplace where I was forced to, like an airport. And even then, I. I kind of bent the rules as much as I could. Um, I didn't wash my hands any more than normal. Uh, I, I never took the vaccines. And guess what? I didn't get sick. Um, I, I did get sick very briefly in the summer of 2021, but it was after eating at a Chinese restaurant, and I was sick for maybe four days, and I, I think it was probably food poisoning. But uh, I, I, you know, and a bunch of my associates uh, were in the same situation, and I don't know anybody that got sick. And I don't know, I don't even know of anybody that died. I have asked like everybody I know if they know anybody who died from COVID and never got any definitive answers. Uh, I do know of one guy who died, but he died of a heart attack and he was an older guy and he was overweight and he smoked cigarettes. So uh, um, I think it was just overhyped flu and pneumonia. And if you look at statistics during the whole COVID so-called crisis, uh, flu deaths were down. Uh, pneumonia deaths were, were way down during that whole crisis. And that's, uh, that's very, I think they dropped by like 90% or something. And I think it's just that all they did was they took the flu and pneumonia and every year there's people who die of that and they just hyped it up, you know, and, yeah. uh, you know, Donald Trump, he was involved in pushing the vaccine and he also signed that $6 trillion, um, stimulus package, which, uh, you know, 98% of that money went to special interest groups. And, you know, that that added to the inflation that we're feeling, you know, right now. And that thing zoomed through Congress. I think it was just like maybe, you know, Tom Massey and Rand Paul were probably like maybe like the only people that didn't vote for it. Might have been a few others, but uh, most of Congress voted for it. And it, it, it was just it was just garbage. And then Trump was, you know, pushing the vaccine and everything. And like if I could figure it out that it was a bunch of BS, then, you know, what's wrong with him? All right, buddy. I do call back in. We'll talk I, later. Yeah, I, I'll tell you what I'm going to do too. Like, I'm going to respond to some of the things that you've said without you on the line, which I don't usually like to do. I, I okay. don't usually think it's reputable for a radio host to do that, but I got to respond to it. I'll be happy to talk to you about it another time. You know, look, 
the, the any time that you have a big spending bill in Congress, there's going to be interest groups involved. That's politics. It's inevitable. Okay, the idea that Donald Trump would be able to come in there and change that is fucking preposterous. And so, like, you're going to spend a bunch of money. Fine. Inflation. Well, here's the thing, and here Donald Trump is fucking smarter than Mitch McConnell in this regard. Okay, you you're going to spend a bunch of money right before the fucking election. You're going to go and mail fucking checks with your goddamn signature on them to the people. You ever, you know, if you know anything about the fucking Democrat Party and the goddamn promises that they make, they understand the concept of buying votes. It's not crazy for the Republicans to figure that out at some point. And so you go and you 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 create this inflationary economic policy right before the election. So one of two things is going to happen. Either the inflationary monetary policy is going to help you get reelected and you'll have this problem on your hands, or the in or the inflationary monetary policy will not help you get elected and you'll be handing your opponent a fucking disaster, which is actually a great fucking idea. That's one of the problems with democracy outlined by Hans Hermann Hoppe in Democracy, the God that failed. But, you know, he, he argues essentially that kingdoms were more efficient governments in part because, you know, the king owned the capital stock of the kingdom and he passed it on to his heirs and therefore, it was not in his long-term best interest to diminish the future of the country. That is completely fucking turned upside down by democracy, where, like, the best thing that you can do politically is hand your political opponent a fucking disaster. You get all that you can out of it during your term. It's also one of the problems with term limits that nobody ever brings up. People are like, oh, term limits are going to be so great. Once these people aren't in government forever, you know, then they'll start making wise decisions. Oh, Yeah. Oh, so you think that people having no long-term investment in a thing generally causes them to treat it better. That's an interesting fucking theory. Where'd you come up with that fucking nonsense? So, you know, I think that there's cause to be skeptical about these things. And the vaccine, look, you know, Donald Trump comes in there and is like, I, I you know, he's been there for a while. He's got the whole world is arrayed against him. And now he's got what I, what I believe is a Chinese fucking bioweapon on his hands. And... It's destroying the fucking country. Well, what do we have to do to do this? How do we fix this fucking problem is what Donald Trump does. He goes and he asks smart people, hey, how do I solve this fucking problem? And so guys who are in the business of making medicine are like, hey, uh, you know, give us a whole shitload of money and we'll go make some medicine that'll keep people from getting sick. And if you're Donald Trump, that's the fucking greatest thing that you could ever hope to hear. How much money do you want? Because I've got a printing press. I can print fucking dollars all day. If you think that you would not do that in that position, you're out of your fucking mind. Oh, you, I'm going to ask an expert, and the expert tells me that if you give me this much money, I can keep people from dying of this disease. And you're like, well, you know, what? You know, if I print this dollars, then you know, you know, fucking the cost of beef's going to go up. You're not going to do that. That's not that's not what a reasonable person in his position would do. So like. You know, that's not unreasonable in the slightest. The idea that Donald Trump is like conspiring to fucking feed people poison is preposterous. So, you know, that's my thoughts on it. I'll, I'll happily talk to you about it another time. I genuinely, I, generally, I think it's disreputable for a radio host to do something like that after hanging up on a caller. But I just, I have to wrap it up. I got people on hold. Caller, you're on a radical agenda. What's your agenda? Hey, Chris. Uh, did you hear about this uh, open letter from Hans Hermann Hoppe, disowning bloodthirsty Jew Walter Block? No, I haven't heard about that at all. 
Yeah, you can read the letter online or you can go on uh, YouTube and just type an open letter to Walter E. Block, Hans Hermann Hoppe. And essentially, you know, this uh, Walter Block tries to present an argument saying that Jews have some kind of historic right to the Palestinian lands and all this and that and using Rothbardian principles. And uh, yeah, he just gets shredded. Okay. Um, well, this is very interesting. Um, well, this is what I just pulled up is not the letter, apparently. Oh, there we go. I was looking at a sub stack where somebody was writing about it. So this is um, interesting. Uh, I will... The YouTube video... I will, I will read this. Oh, this is kind of long. Um, fuck it. I'm going to read this before I close the show out. Thank you for bringing this to my attention. What What do you have to say about this? And then I'll read it before I close out. Oh, it's just, I believe it just shows how subversive this individual is. I mean, Walter Block, he wrote a book defending the indefendable. He's defending pimps in there, defending slumlords. You know what I mean? It's just so typical. You know, I, I read Defending the Undefendable. I don't think that it was such an abomination as a lot of people on the right make it out to be. I mean, it was an economics text. You know, he's talking about these, are, you know, what, what Walter Block says in Defending the Undefendable is the, these are not the things that you're making them out to be. And as a matter of fact, the, the case that he makes in that book is actually pretty compelling. He's not saying that these things are virtuous. He's not making moral arguments about them. What he's saying is, like you say that the slumlord, you say that the speculator is my favorite example. Okay, the speculator. People hate the speculator because he buys things when they are cheap, driving up the cost of those things, and then when those things become scarce, he has stockpiles of them, which he charges more for at that time. Okay, and and people look upon him as the as a fucking monster because he's selling water to thirsty people at you know high prices. Well, if those thirsty people want that fucking water, they better be happy to pay double for it because in the absence of that option, they don't have water. And that's actually an eminently reasonable thing for an economist to say. And so, like, you know, you can maybe take greater issue with some of the other things. You mentioned pimps and, you know, I, I don't remember pimps, but I remember slumlords and, you know, drug dealers and things like this. You know, it, I think that, that that book does not get its just do from a lot of people on the right but um i haven't read this letter from hoppe i take hans hoppe very fucking seriously and i think that he's a very smart guy and so i uh i'll be interested to know more about it <clears throat> um but any last thoughts you have on the letter i gotta let you go it's 11 30 now i do want to wrap the show up yeah walter block you know he uh he went from defending the indefensible to pretty much given arguments to Benjamin Netanyahu as to why those lands belong to the Jews and not the Palestinians. You know what I mean? He just gets shredded in this article. He's, his arguments are interesting, but in this case, he went way too far. Okay. Well, that's an interesting, you know, I, I don't doubt that, uh, I don't doubt that Hans Hermann Hoppe has uh, given a brand new orifice to Mr. Block, and I'm going to enjoy reading that on the air. So thank you very much for bringing it to my attention, he's friend. Good. He's, he's straight up disowned him. Well, thank you very much, my friend. I, you brought. The, uh, I'm very glad to have this before the end of the production today. And uh, you make sure call me call me again whenever you have something this hot. Okay, pal. Yes, sir. Take care. Thank you very much. Have yourself a good night. And so, why don't we uh, real quick? I'll just. I have this one last blurb from the from the email today that I'll read aloud to you. Um, I uh, there was an update on the Texas border battle we've been talking about. It looks like there might yet be hope of a legal remedy to avoid a civil war down there. It was lost on me at the time. 
But a post at Newsweek contains some more detailed legal analysis than I had previously consumed. It turns out the Supreme Court's 5-4 decision last month authorizing the federal government to continue dismantling border barriers erected by the Texas state government was not a decision on the merits of the case. It was only in turning an injunction issued by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which had enjoined the federal government from continuing to take down those border barriers while the, while the broader litigation worked its way through the courts. So it always remained entirely possible, perhaps even likely, that the court would ultimately come down on the side of Texas. But the court had taken the position that to enjoin the federal government from acting while the litigation played out was an overstep by the lower court. That is, of course, still quite outrageous. If there's any likelihood of victory for Texas, the federal government suffers no harm by seeing immigration laws enforced by whoever may be doing it. Only the narrow interests of nefarious types who facilitate this invasion are diminished by that enforcement. But it is much easier for the likes of John Roberts and Amy Cody Barrett to justify that, you know, I'm sorry, then to say that Texas has no right to protect itself from invasion. Uh, If either of them switch their vote when it comes time to judge the merits of the broader dispute, Texas wins. And even progressive bloggers are concluding uh, or speculating in a case that this is likely to be what happens. So I was, uh, yeah, I've thought that any minute now there was people we're gonna be fucking shots fired down there if that does not appear to be the case and that's very good news we don't get a whole lot of good news these days so you know be happy is you know it's good when we find out there's some good things happen in the world now as for this uh this letter from hans hoppe well i should read some super chats first um Glenn 19, very sorry for not getting these sooner. Glenn 19, Campwell, did you see that a Ukrainian Jew won Miss Japan? Take a look at what speech she gave about diversity when she won. Um, I am absolutely Japanese. Ukrainian-born model sparks debate by winning Miss Japan pageant. Well, oh, God. Oh, I got to show you this. That's fucking funny. Uh, let's zoom in on that nose a bit. So this is the uh, this is the Japanese woman <laughs> who's Miss Japan now, and she's absolutely Japanese, and you could tell by the nose that she's Japanese. She very look very Japanese with that with that fucking schnoz of hers is definitely you know it's a very Japanese feature. <laughs> and not really, I'm kidding. That's that's not for those of you who are listening on, to the podcast and don't see the video. That's a joke. That's a gag, as we call it in the industry. <laughs> Oh man, you know it's that's really upsetting too because you know the Japanese, you know, they, you know, they've had some better fucking sense about these things than than other people say. I'm not going to read the whole piece, but we get the gist of it. Thank you very much, Glenn. 1433 from Libertariat, based in unvaxxed Chris. Oh yes, indeed. You know, uh, Tony Soprano, 2777. Good show, Chris. Well, thank you very much, my friend. Um, the uh, all right, so let's wrap it up with this Hans Hoppe thing. This is uh, we're going to go a little over tonight because this is not particularly brief, but we'll get through it. <clears throat> I'm gonna I'm gonna hang up the phones though, so I'm not burning up the thing. I appreciate you guys who called in tonight. I look great. I I miss when you know I really fucking miss when we were on YouTube and just like we had fucking calls nonstop. That was you know I miss those fucking days when like. You know, I'd be like, what? Your call sucks. Fuck you. Be better. Call back and, and hang up on people and go on to the next one. The phones are just packed the whole time. We've got to get back to that state. But thanks. Great calls tonight. 
So Hans Hoppe over at uh, Mises.org has this to say. It's an open letter to Walter E. Block dated February 1st, 2024. And he says, break it up with a person you have known for more than 30 years with whom you have participated in countless conferences and co-authored a couple of articles, even if only in somewhat distant past, is nothing done lightly. It is even harder if one shares with this person a common standing as a public intellectual, and both our names are mentioned frequently in one breath as prominent students of the same teacher, Marie and Rothbard, as leading intellectual lights of the modern libertarian movement founded by Rothbard. But then, in this position, it becomes near imperative to always stay on guard and take notice if a person closely associated with your own name goes astray and falls into serious error, and you may be compelled to publicly distance and disassociate yourself from this person in order to protect your own personal and intellectual reputation along with Rothbard's and that of the entire libertarian intellectual edifice, such is the case with Walter Block. Block, to his credit, has published countless articles that push that pass muster by libertarian standards, and there are likely many more to come. He has effusively praised Rothbard over and over again, and he likes to refer to himself as the sweet and kind Walter. However, he has also published materials that clearly disqualify him as a libertarian and Rothbardian and that reveal him instead as an unhinged collectivist taken in by genocidal impulses, very much like Rand and the Randians recently taken to task by Fernando Chioca rather than a kind and sweet person. I will offer three exhibits to substantiate this claim. Exhibit 1, Block's writings, together with Alan Futerman and Rafi Faber, on the classical liberal, respectively libertarian case for Israel, endorsed, surprise, surprise, by none other than Benjamin Netanyahu. The cornerstone of libertarian doctrine is the idea and institution of private property. Property, whether in land or anything else, is lawfully and justly acquired, either by means of original appropriation of previously unowned resources, also known as homesteading, or else by means of voluntary property transfer from a prior to some later owner. All property is always and invariably the property of some specific identifiable individuals, and all property transfers and exchanges take place between specified individuals and concern specified identifiable objects. In reverse, all claims to property by a person who had neither homesteaded or previously produced such property, nor acquired it through voluntary transfer from some previous owner, are unlawful and unjust. It's a very good articulation of the libertarian theory of property, by the way, which you might come to expect if you know anything about Hans Hoppe. For the potential problem of restitution or compensation from this implies, I'm sorry, for, for the potential problem of restitution or compensation, this implies in every case of conflicting property claims brought to trial for judgment, the presumption is always in favor of the current possessor of the resource under construction, and the burden of a proof to the contrary is always on the opponent of the current state of affairs and current possessions. The opponent must demonstrate that he, contrary to prima facie evidence, has a better claim because he has an older title to some specified piece of property than its current owner and whose ownership is hence unlawful. If and only if an opponent can successfully demonstrate this, must the questionable possession be restored as property to him. On the other hand, if the opponent fails to make this case, uh, if the, I'm sorry. On the other hand, if the opponent fails to make this case, matters stay 
the way they are. It is not in question that a considerable number of cases exist where lawful compensation or restitution is owed, where person A can demonstrate that he is the lawful owner of some specified piece of property currently in possession and wrongfully claimed as his own by person B. It is also not in question that there exist some cases in which a current property owner can trace back the title to some of his present holdings for many generations. But it should also be obvious that for most people and most present holdings, any such backtracking from present to past ends up lost in history very quickly and in any case gets increasingly more difficult and murky with time, leaving little if any room for any present-day reparation demands for ancient crimes. How about 2,000-year-old crimes? Is there anyone... Is there any one living person to be found today who can claim lawful ownership of some specific piece of property, land, or jewelry that is and has been for a couple of thousand years in the possession of others by demonstrating his own prior claim to these possessions through proof of an uninterrupted chain of property title transfers going from him and today all the way back to some specific ancestor living in biblical times and unlawfully victimized at that time? This is not inconceivable, of course, but I very much doubt that any such case can be found. I would want to see it before I believe it. And yet, Bloch et al., in their attempt of presenting the liberal, respectively libertarian case for Israel, maintain that they can justify the claim of present-day Jews to a homeland in Palestine based on their status as heirs of Jews living two millennia ago in the region then called Judea. Not surprisingly, however, except for the single and in itself highly questionable case of Kohanim, Jews priestly descent, uh, I'm sorry, Jews of priestly descent, I should say, and their specific connection to the Temple Mount, they do not provide a shred of evidence how in the world any one specific present-day Jew through a time span of more than 2,000 years can be connected to any one specific ancient Jew and be established as the legitimate heir of some specific piece of property stolen or otherwise taken from him 2,000 years ago. The claim of present-day Jews to a homeland in Palestine, then, can only be made if you abandon the methodological individualism underlying, the character, underlying and characteristic of all libertarian thought. The notion of individual personhood, of private property, private conduct and accomplishment, private crime and private guilt. Instead, you must adopt some form of collectivism that allows for such notions as group or tribal property and property rights, collectively responsibility and collective responsibility and collective guilt. This turn from an individualistic to a collectivistic perspective is clearly on display in Blockatal's summary conclusion on page 537. Well, that's some lengthy uh, discussion. Quote, Rothbard supports homesteading as the legitimate means of ownership. The first homesteader gets the land, not any subsequent one. Libertarians deduce from this fact that stolen property must be returned to its original owners or their heirs. This is the case for reparations. Well, the Romans stole the land from the Jews around two millennia ago. The Jews never gave this land to the Arabs or anyone else. According to libertarian theory, it should be returned to the Jews. End of quote. That's quoting from Bloch there. Uh, says Hoppe, bingo, but, the, but homesteading is done by some specific Ben or Nate, not by the Jews. And likewise, reparations for crimes committed against Ben or Nate are owed to some specific David or Moshe as 
their heir, not to the Jews, and they concern specific pieces of property, not all of Israel. Unable to find any present-day David or Moshe that can be identified as Ben's or Nate's heir to some specified piece of property, however, all reparation claims directed against any current owner are without any base. Another property theory is needed to still make the case for a Jewish homeland, and Block and his co-authors offer such a theory. Property rights and reparation claims can allegedly also be justified by genetic and cultural similarity. Ancient Jews and present-day Jews are genetically and culturally related, and hence present-day Jews are entitled to the property stolen from ancient Jews and the expulsion of hundreds of thousands of Palestinian Arabs immediately before and in the aftermath of the founding of the State of Israel in 1948, then, is not a crime, but simply the repossession of what legitimately belongs and has belonged for two millennia to the Jews. Yet this theory is not only absolute, obviously incompatible with libertarianism, it is also just plain absurd. Just consider, Jews lived for hundreds of years in Egypt, and when they finally reached their promised land, this was by no means empty. According to Deuteronomy and Joshua, quite a bit of killing, pillaging, and raping had to be done before taking over that land. Ancient Jews were not just homesteaders, they were also perpetrators, and there had been plenty of ethnic mixing with other peoples of other tribes, with Egyptians, Greeks, and all sorts of people all around the Mediterranean long before the Romans arrived and took over, and this genetic admixture, later also with Arabs, continued up to the present day. Any genetic linking of present-day Jews to ancient Jews, then, becomes an impossible task. There are contemporary Jews that show no genetic traces to ancient Jews, and there are plenty of Gentiles who do show such traces. And in any case, the genetic similarities to be found between the ancient and the present Jews will be one of countless variations and degrees. How to decide, then, who of the contemporaries is entitled to what portion of the Holy Land? Interestingly, it appears that the closest genetic similarity between ancient Jews could be found among those indigenous, indigenous Christian Palestinians. However, what if the fanciful new theory of property acquisition and inheritance via genetic similarity were generalized to all tribes and ethnicities? There are countless cases of expropriations and expulsions of one group or tribe by another in human history of victims of perpetrators involving non-Jews as well as latter-day Jews? How about every group of present-day descendants of some historical victim group demanding restitution of assets currently held by the members of another group or tribe on account of the fact that such assets had been stolen from one's ethnic forebears sometime way back in history, whether by the group of present owners or any other group? The result would be legal chaos, interminable strife, conflict, and war. Is this collectivistic nonsense not enough to disqualify Bloch as a libertarian? Um, if this collective, uh, I'm sorry, if this collectivistic nonsense is not enough to disqualify Bloch as a libertarian, the following exhibit demonstrating its monstrous consequences should remove even the slightest remaining doubt that he is anything but a libertarian, a Rothbardian, or a sweet and nice person. Exhibit 2. This is a recent article by Block, again co-authored with Futerman, originally most prominently published, although behind a paywall, by one of the most establishment papers, the Wall Street Journal. What a surprise! 
and subsequently easily accessibly reprinted on Block's own newsletter on October 12th of 2023. It is titled, The Moral Duty to Destroy Hamas, Israel is Entitled to Do Whatever It Takes to Uproot This Evil, Depraved Culture that Resides Next to It, and as the title already indicates, it is this screed of his then that Walt, uh, that reveals Block as an unhinged, bloodthirsty monster. Wow, strong language. Rather than a libertarian committed to the non-aggression principle as the second complementary foundational pillar of the libertarian doctrine. Subject here are the events of October 7, 2023, its aftermath and consequences. On that day, members of the so-called Hamas running the Gaza Strip attacked, maimed, killed, and kidnapped a large number of Israeli soldiers and citizens, civilians, I should say. As is to be expected in any type of war, both warring parties are presently widely uh, presenting widely differing stories concerning the actual events and numbers. What has become clear so far is only that the number of casualties runs in the several hundreds to low 1,000s, and that a considerable portion of such casualties were actually the result of friendly fire per helicopter by the IDF. What is a libertarian to make of this event? First, he must recognize that both Hamas and the State of Israel are gangs financed and funded not by voluntary membership contributions, but by extortion, taxation, confiscation, and expropriation. Hamas does so in Gaza with the people living in Gaza, and the State of Israel does it with the people living in Israel as well, as, the, as well as the Palestinians living in the West Bank. Gaza is a tiny, poor, and densely populated territory, and Hamas is accordingly a small, low-budget gang, with only some ragtag army and little and mostly low-grade weaponry. Israel is a much larger, significantly more prosperous, and less densely populated territory, and the state of Israel, subsidized long-lastingly by and heavily by the world's mightiest and wealthiest of all gangs, the United States of America, is a big and high-budget gang with some large, well-trained professional army equipped with the most sophisticated and destructive weaponry available, including atomic bombs. The older one, the older one of these two fighting gangs is the state of Israel itself. Uh, is the state of Israel itself established only recently in 1948 by mostly European Jews of Zionist persuasion and by means of intimidation, terrorism, war, and conquest directed against the then-present and for many centuries prior, mostly Arab residents of the region of Palestine. And it was also by means of intimidation, terrorism, war, and conquest then that the explicitly Jewish state of Israel was successfully expanded to its present size. Hundreds of thousands of Arabs were uprooted, expropriated, and expelled from their homes and turned into refugees as a result. And large numbers of these victims, or their direct heirs, are still in possession of valid title to land or to other properties now in the possession of the state of Israel, the land, the, the Israel Land Authority, and its Jewish citizens. At best, only a meager 7% of present Israeli territory was regularly acquired or purchased by Jews before 1948 and could thus be claimed as legitimate Jewish property. Hamas, on the other hand, is one of several Arab resistance movements, parties, and gangs formed in reaction to the Israeli-Jewish takeover and occupation of Palestine. Founded originally in 1987 and since 2006 in control of the Gaza Strip, 
which was and still is subject to a rigorous land, air, and sea blockade by Israel and hence frequently referred to by knowledgeable observers as an open-air concentration camp, Hamas is committed to the reconquest of the lost territories, including by means of violence and acts of terror, such as on October 7th. Explicitly directed not against the Jews qua Jews, but specifically against Zionists, it actually received funding also from Israel in its beginnings in order to build it up as a counterweight to the growing influence of the larger, the more moderate, and better funded secular underground resistance group Fatah, and its PLO leadership in exile in Tunisia. As Fatah and the PLO were put in charge of some parts of the West Bank and Gaza as part of the peace process that began in 1993, the more militant and Islamic fundamentalist Hamas's relative, in trans, uh, relative intransigence became a useful tool for the increasingly influential extremist Israeli factions which sought to derail the peace process and succeeded in doing so by increasing their building of Jewish settlements that split up the West Bank into non-contiguous open-air prisons controlled by Israel, rendering a Palestinian state essentially impossible. There has been speculation as to the motive for the seemingly strange Israeli decision of lending support to Hamas, quite plausibly, because events such as that of October 7th can and are indeed being used by Israel as a dramatic proof and public demonstration of its long-held contention that there can never be any two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian problem, and Israel, for the sake of regional peace, must still further expand and restore, uh, be expanded and restored as the single state to its alleged original biblical size. In any case, then, before this background, how is a libertarian to react and evaluate the 10-7 events? First off, he would want to wish the pox on the leadership of both gangs and on all gang leaders of foreign states that have lent and continue to lend support to either one of the two warring gangs with funds stolen from their own subject population. As well, he would acknowledge that the Hamas attack on Israel was no more totally unprovoked than the Russian attack a little while ago on the Ukraine. The attack on Israel was definitely provoked by the conduct of its own political leadership, much like the Russian attack on the Ukraine had been provoked by the leadership of Ukraine. And he would not fail to note also that in both cases, that of Israel as well as that of Ukraine, their provocations had been encouraged, backed up, and supported big time by the predominantly Jewish neocon gang leadership in charge of the United States government. Apart from this, there is, a little, there is little a libertarian can do except raise his voice in favor of peace talks, negotiations, and diplomacy. The Hamas leadership should be accused for having brought about through its terrorist actions the danger of some massive retaliation by a military far superior and more powerful enemy gang. The State of Israel. And the Israeli leadership should be blamed for having failed blatantly in its protecting its own population owing to its apparently severely deficient surveillance agencies. The leadership of both gangs should be encouraged and indeed pressured through public opinion to agree to an immediate truce and, to at, and at once negotiations concerning the return of the hostages held by Hamas should be started. And as for the identification, capture, and punishment of the various individual perpetrators and their superior commanders, including, incidentally, also those responsible for the Israeli victims of friendly fire, this should be left to regular police work to detectives, headhunters, and possibly also assassins.
What must be avoided, however, in any case, and at all costs, is an escalation of the armed conflict through a massive retaliatory strike by the Israeli military against the Hamas, housing and hiding out in Gaza. This is even more so because Israel, with some 10 million inhabitants, including a minority of some 2 million Arabs, is surrounded exclusively by some less than friendly or even openly hostile neighboring states with a total population counting in the hundreds of millions. And any escalation of the conflict between Israel and Hamas may well expand and degenerate into an all-out war engulfing the entire region of the Near and Middle East. But this is precisely what Bloch et al. are demanding. Based on their collectivist theory of inheritance presented in Exhibit 1 and the alleged historical right of the Jews to a homeland in Palestine derived from this theory, Bloch, in response to the events of October 7th, advocates an all-out attack by Israel on the Hamas hiding out in Gaza. And while we do not know if Netanyahu has read Bloch's piece in the Wall Street Journal, Israel, under his leadership, has done exactly what Bloch has been asking for. Leaving Bloch's sketchy, characteristically one-sided remarks on the history of modern Israel and the region aside, which could have come directly from the Israeli Ministry of Propaganda, and that show himself completely oblivious to the genocidal impulses openly expressed by several leading members of the mighty Israeli military and government, all the while making much hay out of the reciprocal sentiments on the side of the, comparatively speaking, almost powerless Hamas leadership, this, in his own words are Bloch's demands, with my italicized comments interspersed in parentheses. So this may make a challenging live read, but I'll do what I can. Quoting from Bloch, the West needs to understand that to defend human life and dignity, it isn't enough to claim to side with Israel. It needs to understand that this means total unrestricted support. Commentary by Hoppe, Does such support also include taxes forcibly taken by the various gang leaders in charge of Western states from their own population? Back to Bloch. That is nothing less than allowing this beleaguered country to defend itself fully, to recognize that Hamas needs to be destroyed for the same reason and by the same method that the Nazis were. Oh, well, now you know that we're going off the rails. Uh, Quoting uh, commentary from Hoppe. Does Nazis refer to all Germans living in Germany at the time, including all non-Nazi Nazi opponents and all German babies and children? And does the method of their destruction also include the carpet bombing of entire cities, such as Dresden, filled with mostly innocent civilians? Going back to Block, Israel is entitled to do whatever it takes to uproot this evil residing next to it. Back to Hoppe. How about the Israeli Jews opposed to war? Silence them too, whatever it takes? Back to Block. And more important, that once it begins to proceed in that direction, it won't be demonized for defending that which is the core of Western civilization. Parenthetically by Hoppe, does this core also include the sort of apartheid practices in Israel, back to Bloch, and which its enemies hate the most, the love of everyone's right to human life, dignity, and happiness. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Sentimentality. It's always good. (laughs) Uh, quoting from Bloch, in other words, it needs to support a complete, total, and decisive Israeli victory. This implies an overwhelming, unprecedented use of military force, so be it. Hamas is and will be responsible for any civilian casualties, cause and effect. They created their own destruction and its consequences. Commentary by Hapa. 
So there is no need whatsoever to distinguish between members of Hamas and inhabitants of Gaza generally. They all, including all babies and children, are indiscriminately guilty, part of a depraved culture and a collective evil that must be rooted out once and for all. How about dropping an atomic bomb on Gaza then, as the U.S. did about 80 years ago on the civilian populations of Hiroshima and Nagasaki as collective punishment for the crimes committed by the Japanese government gang? Back to Block. Mere victory is not enough. Israel has won every war it ever fought. This time, the triumph must be so thorough and conclusive that there will never be any other war for this country. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Um, uh, Hoppe here. Haven't we heard this before, the war to end all wars? That's what they said about World War I, if you don't know. Back to Block. Israel has a moral right to finish the job, and the West has a moral duty to support it. Let Israel do whatever it must to finish this war in the fastest way possible with minimum civilian and military casualties on its side. Back to Hapa. How considerate and totally meaningless, even shameful, after everything said to the contrary before about the irrelevance of civilian casualties. Back to Block. The consequences of this lie on the group that initiated the casual co the causal sequence, the one that must be completely destroyed, namely Hamas. And so he's done quoting from Bloch there, and we return to Hoppe. Whatever these outpourings of Bloch's are, they are nothing whatsoever to do with libertarianism. In fact, to advocate the indiscriminate slaughter of innocence is the total and complete negation of libertarianism and the non-aggression principle. The Murray Rothbard I knew would have immediately called them out as unhinged, monstrous, unconscionable, and the sickening and publicly ridiculed, denounced, unfriended, and excommunicated block as a Rothbardian. Indeed, unforgivably, with his Wall Street Journal piece, Block has made a contribution to the horrors actually following the events of October 7th and still unfolding. The near-complete destruction of Gaza and its reduction to little more than some huge pile of rubble and vast fields of ruins the slaughter of tens of thousands of innocent civilians by the Israeli military and the continuous widening of the armed conflict, including by now also the Lebanon, uh, the Lebanon and Yemen, and of the Israeli leadership itching, egging on in this endeavor by its neocon compatriots in the U.S. to further include as a target for destruction also the Iran as Israel's alleged deadly archenemy. Incidentally, Bloch's supplementary reason for uh, given his uh excuse me come on stop doing that oh that's the thing that i need to do sorry had a problem with my mouse incidentally block's supplementary reason given for his categorical we must all stand with israel position israeli government leadership at all is also faulty and implies a betrayal of the non-aggression principle Essentially, it boils down to this. The Jews in Israel have made more and better use of the territory under their control than the Arabs made or are currently making with the territories controlled by them. And hence, the Jews have a better claim to some territory in dispute than the Arabs do. This reasoning is actually quite popular. However, even if the first part of the statement is accepted as true, the second part does not follow from it. Otherwise, every man of proven success would be permitted to take the property of any long-proven loser, which can hardly be reconciled with the libertarian non-aggression principle. Even losers have a right to life, property, and the pursuit of happiness. If that is not already more than enough to forever disqualify and discredit Bloch as a libertarian, he manages to top it off in some short final exhibit that reveals him as a man without a sense of measure and proportion. 
And we move on to Exhibit 3. This concerns Block's reply to a short piece by Kevin Duffy, contrasting a passage taken from Rothbard's For a New Liberty, a new a libertarian manifesto. I'm sorry. There is a different document titled The New Libertarian Manifesto written by Sam Konkin. It has nothing to do with this. Don't mistake the title. For a new libertarian, for a new liberty, a libertarian manifesto. That's Rothbard's piece that's being referenced here. With a passage from the just-quoted screed of blocks in the Wall Street Journal and concluding that both are obviously incompatible and impossible to reconcile, Block's response can be found in the uh, hyperlinked post uh, titled, Have I Gone AWOL? at walterblock.substack.com. Remarkably, in his reply, he does not even try to provide further reason for his advocacy of total unrestricted war, not surprisingly, as that would mean trying to defend what is absolutely, truly, and genuinely indefensible. Oh, clever. Instead, he evades the direct challenge and then quickly digresses into some entirely different and unrelated subject matter. Libertarians are not pacifists, and indeed Rothbard, as Block excusingly notes, was not opposed to all war. But conspicuously, Block then fails to say that the wars Rothbard considered possibly or potentially justified had nothing whatsoever in common with the sort of war actually proposed by him. What Rothbard had in mind was defensive violence used by secessionist movements against some central occupying powers, trying to prevent them by means of war from leaving, i.e. somebody obviously a world apart from the total war advocated by Bloch. Yet in stating that Rothbard does not oppose all war, period, Bloch tries to create the deceptive impression from this that, uh, for, I'm sorry, create the deceptive impression that his deviation from Rothbard, then, is merely a minor one, only a matter of degree. Various deviations from Rothbard, he then continues, have been suggested or proposed by other authors. And he cites and links to his effect several contribute to this, I'm sorry, he links to this effect several contributions of his own, of Joseph Salerno, of Peter Klein, and also myself, not me, Hoppe, and notes that none of these has led to the exclusion of anyone of them as Austro-Libertarians, nor would Rothbard himself have excluded them as such on account of these writings. Indeed, Rothbard embraced some of these deviations, such as mine, for instance, and he may well have seriously considered the others. Such, then, Block claims, should also be the appropriate reaction to his deviationist position on the war question, and also what he believes would have been Rothbard's personal reaction upon reading his Wall Street Journal piece. Grotesque. If anything, this assessment of Bloch's only indicates that he has lost any sense of measure and proportion. None of the other deviationist writings mentioned by him in comparison to and as an excuse and justification for his own deviationist position on the war question is or can be interpreted by any stretch of the imagination as a break with or renunciation of the fundamental principles of Austro-Libertarian intellectual edifice. But his call for total and unrestricted war and the indiscriminate slaughter of innocent civilians is actually the complete and in uninhibited rejection and renunciation of the non-aggression principle that constitutes one of the very cornerstones of the Rothbardian system. To believe that Rothbard would have given serious consideration to his Wall Street Journal piece is simply ridiculous and only indicates that Bloch's understanding of Rothbard is not nearly as good as he himself fancies it to be. The Rothbard I knew would have denounced the piece in no uncertain terms as monstrous and considered it an unforgivable aberration and disgrace. Well, that is a strongly worded letter and an open one at that. <clears throat> you know, 
we're, you know, now we're a little after midnight. We're a little over time here, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but I'll make a couple of brief observations. The first of which is I I think Hans Hoppe is great. I, I love Hans Hoppe. He's been so influential on me. And so don't mistake what I'm saying for anything negative against him, but these libertarian things about you're a libertarian, you're not, you're excommunicated, this is cult jargon. This is like, it, this is the complete not, I keep on warning the alt-right and white nationalists against this, you know. I mentioned this when I was on White Rabbit Radio not so long ago, like I'm on White Rabbit Radio and there's a guy in the chat, he's like, Catwell's not a white nationalist. I'm like, okay, fine, faggot, like, <laughs> you know fine like i actually have nothing to gain or lose by you saying that what the fuck do i give a fuck if you think i'm a white nationalist you have to lose if you take white nationalism seriously it's a very bad investment for you to to take a guy like me and be like you're not part of our movement because if i'm not then who the fuck is <laughs> you know politics is uh, addition and multiplication if you're subtracting and dividing you lose you know unless you're doing it to the other side obviously want to make your movement smaller go the fuck ahead and that's not to say that, you know, ideological coherence is impertinent or irrelevant. But they do this all the time. They're as bad as the conservatives, maybe worse. With their fucking ever so often with their purges, right? And you go through this like process where, you know, you're quoting other bloggers and writers, you know, well, you know, there weren't blogs when Murray Rothbard was writing, but, you know, articles and essays written by Murray Rothbard are taken as, you know, doctrine. This is this is the this is the gospel, and you've 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 blasphemed by contradicting it. Um, and just and you know, and that's and to point out that I'm not making a hit against Hoppe by saying this. That's exactly what basically Block seeks to justify a war animated by an ethnic an ethnocentric interest. Say okay. And so he's like, okay, well, because I want to justify this war and because I'm recognized as a, as a libertarian thinker, I have to try to squeeze this in to the writings of Murray Rothbard. And he goes and he's like, well, you know, here's where Murray Rothbard, uh, you know, was not contemptuous of waging war. And because I've got this, you know, this segment of his words, I can try to influence you by thinking that my words have something to do with them this is crazy talk it's dogmatic ideological mysticism is what it is okay what you know hoppa goes through here with the property rights thing it's a perfect and very well articulated description of libertarian thoughts on property rights it's also completely fucking impractical and disconnected from reality okay so like the idea that all property is going to be transferred individually and and all alt property is individual titles, well, that's at odds with the entirety of the human experience. There's no period of written history where anything like that was even conceivable. And that doesn't mean that, you know, we can't look forward to a future where things that are inconceivable now are conceivable, but human societies have governments. They collect taxes and part of the reason that they collect taxes is because you don't want to be governed by the oil company okay <laughs> you don't you don't want the the people who run around shooting everybody and putting them in prison competing with you in business there's good reasons for governments to be financed by taxation 
They do the thing that nobody else can do, which is use violence to collect what they need. Okay. And then the government says nobody else is allowed to do that, and they put you in prison for trying, right? And whatever you think about the justice of that, that is part of the reason why mankind is the undisputed ruling species of this planet. Because our entire written history is constituted of that phenomenon. I'm not opposed to a new future where we do things more peacefully or cooperatively. That's a great idea. But let's stop acting like taxation is some aberration. It's not. That's the perfectly normal state of affairs that has existed for as long as we've had the capacity to write down history. And so there is such a thing as collective property. That's obvious. And Hoppe knows that, by the way. So, like, you know, when Hoppe talks about immigration, he says, well, the idea that the borders are open because the government doesn't have a legitimate claim to property is nonsense because in the absence of this coercive element, that property would be owned by private property owners. They would not allow an invasion to pass across their lands. And since the government has an illegitimate title through its coercive acquisition of the property, the true holders of the title are the taxpayers and the taxpayers are the rightful owners of the government, and therefore the taxpayers have the right to tell the government not to facilitate invasion. And that's a very coherent you know, thought process for the justification of the state, is what that actually is. The state is owned by the people who sustain it, and they enter into, you know, they are, I'm sorry for struggling to articulate this because it's complex and I really want you to understand this. If the state were comprised of voluntary members, say, they would enter into an agreement not so dissimilar from any organization where they decide how differences of opinion within the organization are made, right? Do you have any corporate board? Not everybody on the board has to agree for the corporation to do a thing. And the state, is, you know, in theory, is not so different in that respect. So you have these people who are owners of the institution that we call the state. And Hoppe talks about this. Well, we, we could basically accomplish all of these things in voluntary terms if we just, you know, organize society this much differently. But if you read Democracy, the God that Failed, and you sort of understand what it is that Hans Hoppe is getting to, it, it's, it's hereditary monarchy, okay? And I'm not opposed to that. I'm not saying that as an attack on Hoppe. But once you have your covenant community, which is what he refers to it as, the covenant community, where you basically form this territorial thing by agreement, well, like, children are born into that, right? And those people are born into this agreement that was made by their parents. And the only way that they can alter the agreement is according to the terms of the agreement, right? So then you're right back to love it or leave it, right? You're back to exactly the thing that libertarians mock about conservatives, which is you were born here. If you don't like it, leave. And then they say, well, I had no choice in the matter. Well, you have no choice in the matter if you're born in the covenant community, except to walk away from it. If that's a, across a larger territory, what the fuck is the difference? There's not actually like a theoretical universal moral principle at work when you're saying that this larger territory is impossible to escape. It's not. 
And so, you know, and I came to that conclusion because of Hoppe. So I don't want anybody to think that I'm attacking a guy. I think the guy's largely correct. So, like, there's a real thing called the state. It's actually integral to our lives. It predates all of our other conceptions, and it sustains itself through coercive means. And you can disagree with the justice of that, but you can't agree with the permanence of it, at least to date. You're going to disagree on whether it has to be permanent in the future. Fine, you can speculate theoretically about that theoretical future, but it exists today, and there's actually no question about that. And it has existed for as long as we've had means to record it. And that is not a subject seriously disputed by honest people. And so, like, you know, to the, to the Israel-Palestine question, it's like, look, I'm a fucking anti-Semite. Do I give a fuck about the well-being of the fucking Jews? As a matter of fact, not. I would love nothing more than for the United States to stop backing these people up and let all the fucking Islam soup <laughs> just pour into that Jewish bowl, okay? And that's exactly what had happened the second the United States stopped fucking around over there, which is exactly what should happen. That's not because I give a fuck about the Palestinians either, as you might have gathered. But, like, this is an ethnic conflict between two groups of people. These people want this territory. These people want this territory. They are going to kill one another, and the people who prove more efficient at slaughter get the territory. I mean, that's actually the realpolitik of the matter. All of your fucking legalistic nonsense about, you know, tracing property titles is out the window. And the, and the idea that these are, I don't think that, you know, is not really making this claim here, but libertarians tend to do it that they believe that their views are universal, timeless, immortal, moral facts, okay? But when you look at that, like, legal analysis that he provides, it becomes very plain to see that that's actually not the case, okay? So when you say, okay, well, I have a, I have a, I have a title to this property, you know, when we say title, we're not talking about a document. You have a claim, say. I have claimed to this property... And the only way I can actually act on that claim is if I go through some legal process. And if I can't prove my claim, then I don't get the property. Okay, well, who's the arbiter of the dispute? You know who the what the answer to that question is: the state. And the libertarians they always have to they always have to gloss over that and be like, well, if it wasn't for the state, then there'd be somebody. You know, you have to go into all of these like third and fourth order you know ideas to try to justify these ideas, and they don't actually hold water fundamentally. The people with the power govern the territory they have the power to govern, and they sustain themselves by coercive means. That is a thus far inseparable fact from human existence. And to create something else is a complete redesign of mankind. And I think, and that's what I really like. I, like Hitler, you know, I had never heard before reading Mein Kampf. Never heard the state really explain. Like when Hitler talks about the state, he explains what the state is, and it's basically you know it's a, the society is an organism, and the and the state is a very important bodily organ, say, and has specific functions. And when you subvert them, you're actually trying to kill the organism. You know, 
and I don't think that, you know, Hoppe has bad intentions or is trying to kill mankind. You know, Bloch might be another story given his ethnic, you know, history. But, like, that's what happens. And so, like, land is transferred by conquest. So when people are like, oh, well, you know, the Palestinians have a claim to this land or the Jews have a claim to this land, I'm like, I don't give a fuck. Like, Native Americans had a claim to land in the United States and then Europeans came here and were like, yeah, fucking fuck you. Have a smallpox blanket. I know I'm, I'm kidding, you know. But they came over here and were like, yeah, you know, I'm just going to go move, you know, right over here. You guys, you guys don't believe in private property, do you? You guys all just, like, kind of wander around. Okay, well, we're going to stay right fucking here. And if you come around here, we'll fucking kill you. <laughs> and their way of life was superior to that of the people who were here prior to them. And now, you know, well, not now so much. Now we're, you know, being taken over by Jews and BIPOC or whatever. But, you know, that's how Europeans conquered the United States. If you fucking say whatever you want about it, I'm pretty fucking glad they did. I don't want to hear any fucking nonsense about transferring property titles back to Native Americans. It's completely out of the question. <laughs> I don't give a fuck what legal theory you posit for it. No. We won by conquest. Fuck you. Come and take it. We'll kill you again. Try it. That's the answer to that fucking question. And that's perfectly fine with me. And I don't need to work that into some fucking legalistic framework it's like no like we came here and you're dead and we win shut up don't come back to me when you're all black and you've been interbreeding with our slaves and then you're like oh well you know the people of the post patuck indian reservation in shirley new york because you know forget the fact that they're all black they've been fucking indian broads and now and now they want their fucking reparation you know whatever the fuck it is I told you that story before I, i'm not going to get into it <laughs> You know, that like the this Indian reservation where I used to go buy cigarettes is populated by black people. <laughs> it's all they're all black, but they have tax exemption because they they making some nonsensical fucking claim to the property by you know their supposed interbreeding with the goddamn Indians. So you know tracing these things back beyond a certain point becomes fucking impossible. Yeah, war is a means of transferring property. And you can argue with the justice of that all the fuck you want, but if you try to say that it doesn't exist as fact, then your fucking ideas are going to cease to correspond with reality pretty quickly. And that's going to become completely useless in practical exercises, at which point you end up in these silly things where people are arguing about what amount to religious doctrines. And so, you know, you go exclude Walter Block from libertarianism, go ahead. You know, I don't care. I'm not trying to fucking help libertarianism. <laughs> You know, Walter Block's done a lot of good work for that, for that, you know, for that school of thought, and not and and no small portion of it is useful to the right. You could do you could do well by reading Defending the Indefendable, like that was a pretty good book. You know, you could disagree with some of the things he says, and it fine. You know, that makes perfect sense. But you know, all of these ideas, you know, what what is what is most remarkable to me about my ideological journey and which makes it impossible for me to fucking sustain these guys, these ideas anymore, is how many times I've been proven wrong about what I believed or my opinions have so, like, radically changed, okay? That, like, things that I thought were absolute, unquestionable things became preposterous to me in a matter of months. You go through that a couple of times, and, like, you're going you're gonna to learn some fucking ideological humility, and I think that we could all afford some of that. Let me read these super chats, and then I'll actually read one more thing that kind of in this vein. Um, 
real quick before we go. I am Winston sends 50 bucks. Have some shekels, Goyam. Thank you very much, my friend. Uh, Tony Soprano, 777, $7.77. Send seven more to $100. And then uh, Fan of the Era sends $14. And Penny says, Hail Kent. Well, well, thank you all very much for uh, making this uh, a night over $100. I appreciate it. Those of you who are listening on other platforms at other times, I'll uh, I'll point out to you that I should definitely make more than 100 bucks a night. So why don't you help me do that? GiveSendGo.com slash SPM. I got the cash app. It's Edgy Chris. I got Strike Payment, Strike.me slash Cantwell. Uh, do that Bitcoin stuff, all the crypto. I'll take whatever crypto you want. If you want to send me crypto in some way that, you know, is not listed at ChristopherCantwell.net slash donate, just go to ChristopherCantwell.contact. Send me an email and I will promptly respond to you. Uh, and do whatever you want to get your crypto. Be very happy to do that. Give you a fresh Bitcoin key. Give you, a, you know, uh, take some, you know, esoteric, non-popular coin you got. Whatever it takes. Love that crypto stuff. And so, you know, in that vein of what I just said about how, you know, my ideas have changed so much over the years. I had a, a text conversation with my mom this morning, matter of fact. And, uh. You see, how much of this do I want to read? It's not not for length. It's not very long, just thinking about it. I posted this to like this little inner circle thing that I sort of have. My mom's recently retired, and she's like on an extended vacation with my father, you know. And um, she was thinking about going back to work. And part of the reason she wanted to go back to work was like, for one, she's kind of like, she's kind of bored or whatever. She was, you know, her job kept her busy. And she's like, what do I do now? So I'm like, don't work till you're dead. Get a hobby. Paint. Write. You know, play a musical instrument. Experiment with drugs if you're that bored. Just no opiates, amphetamines, or cocaine with a smiley face, obviously. Don't want my mother getting, you know, taking up a, 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 a habit of taking LSD or whatever. But, you know, I make this as a joke. But part of what she's, like, annoyed about is that sort of like my father and her, their, their interests, have, you know, their interests are not in line. So, like, if my father's in control of the money and deciding what, they are going to do together, there's a substantial likelihood that my mother's going to be less interested in it than he is, right? And so I give this longer response to what my mother says. It might be a tad late to make this observation, but as I sense your dissatisfaction with this dis disparity of interest, I'll share a thought with you. Your interests and his have diverged in some part because you've had those resources of working for yourself. And thus, neither of you were forced to bring your interests into alignment. Some might say that alignment is or was a defining characteristic of marriage. I have no doubt there are many arguments against this theory. Also, doubtless, there's merit among more than a few. But I am of the informed opinion that women forfeited more power than they gained by serving soulless corporations more than husbands. To which I'll add, though it should be too obvious to warrant mention, is not to downplay in any way your saintly patience for male Cantwells or the heroic and honorable things you've done and sacrificed and tolerated for this family. More a cultural observation, which I hope might help you see your current dissatisfaction differently and find a bit more comfort. In prison, we have very little say over how the household budget is spent, obviously. And though our species would obviously not be long for this world were women to think of marriage as a prison, I draw the comparison only to say that one tends to adjust to their circumstances and find happiness in even the worst of situations once they are deprived of all other options. And perhaps more to the point, few find happiness any sooner than that. 
Fuck the fucking money. You have everything you need. The people who buy your life by the hour are not helping you. They're helping themselves. If you're bored, I could recommend, even buy for you as gifts, some excellent books. And I mean life-changing books that will serve you long after you put them down. Nothing fights boredom like having your worldview routinely shattered and reformed. The most mundane things in your life become totally fascinating novelties just by finding new ways to think about them. And that last part is really what I meant to get at in the vein of what we just read, which is that like the idea of trying to sustain a doctrine over the course of decades, it's like so tired to me, you know? I can't imagine, like, how fucking awful would this show be if I was rattling on about this stuff still? Oh, those of you who tell me that you've been with me since the Some Garbage podcast days, boy, (laughs) I, I get that pretty often. A lot of you have been around from fucking, like, day one. I love that about you. I doubt many podcasters can say that, by the way. And so you think about that phenomenon. That's why I don't give a fuck. Like, people are like, you're not adhering to the doctrine. I'm like, good, fuck you. <laughs> the last fucking thing that I would want to aspire to is saying the same fucking thing over and over again for 20 goddamn years. Leave me the fuck alone. You better fucking hope that I have some new idea after a decade of doing this. Go read a fucking book, learn something, and change your opinions. Or you're going to fucking stagnate and be bored. and Nobody's going to want to talk to you. <laughs> and you see that with the libertarians all the time you know i think you probably have more you know perhaps for the worse you know innovation among religious fanatics christians and shit you know and that could go on for a very long time but i've already put in an hour over time and you know you guys only paid me uh hundred and fourteen dollars and 88 cents that's pretty fucking clever that was very well fucking uh, fan of the era that was pretty clever 1401 I didn't get the penny at first now I understand it that was pretty smart so those of you who are listening on some other platform at some other time you will not interrupt the $114.88 total of this episode by going to givesendgo.com slash spm or sending me some bitcoin or cash app at edgy chris whatever it may be I make it very easy to pay me in a diverse series of ways and uh, you can send me stuff cash or checks or money orders or whatever christopher cantwell 497 hookset road unit 312 manchester new hampshire 03104 and uh i got the amazon wish list you could do stuff there it's all at christophercantwell.net slash donate so thanks for a great show thanks uh, for all the callers thanks for the guy who brought the libertarian thing to my attention you know i do i still think you know the, what the you know, libertarian thing is useful for and then we're going to Anne and we're getting out of here what it's useful for is thinking about this fictitious scenario in order to compare it to others and then to shed new light on a thing, right? Like libertarian theory still informs a lot of what I do. What would this theoretical, mechanical, property-based civilization look like? What are the benefits of it? What are the downsides? And how can that inform my perspective of the more realistic proposal? Like that's useful. It's a, it's a useful thought exercise. It's not the it's not the Jewish plot and plague that a lot of right-wingers make it out to be. It's, it's, there's a lot of intellectual value there just not a system of government you know see you monday for surreal politics when you call in please behave yourself we'll see you wednesday for the surreal politics member show 
for those of you who are smart enough to be Surreal Politics members at surrealpolitics.com slash join. And then we'll be back every Friday, 9.30 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time for the Radical Agenda. Thank you very much for tuning in to the program, the program, as it were. Have yourselves a wonderful weekend and good night. That's it. It's over. Then we organized the death squads for the people who wrecked America. You know what you call people you can't talk to? Enemies. And if we want to divide our society into armed camps of enmity, all we have to do is keep doing what we're doing. A radical agenda. The event has turned into an opportunity for the left to push a racial and radical agenda. Implementing their radical agenda is the only thing they care about. They're bad actors. What they want to do here is ram their radical agenda down your throat. These are great Americans. These are people that want to see great things for the country. You know, they try and build them like uh, sort of a radical agenda. It's not a radical agenda. It's called the Second Amendment. Fuck you, pay me.